Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to Oral's Light, show 164. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone's in for a fine show. We have, oh, big guns playing today. We have none other than a Tad Williams short story coming up today. Give you a little heads up what's in today's show. Fact article, Mr JJ Campanella hits you with November news on science. Then straight in with Amy H. Sturgis looking back at genre history. Then we have Mr Tad Williams in an interview, followed by his short story, The Tenth Muse. Then we have a little interview with the narrator, Nathan Lowell, of that fine story. And then right at the very end, Bollycon podcast, a little promo by them. So do look out for that. Before we go any further, do have a look at this week's or this month's art. It is by Skeet. Yes, he's back on the colouring in pens and the sticky paper and glue and everything. Skeet, what a wonderful art. And I'm not going to tell you about it. Please, I want you to go over there and see if you can spot it. The little homage to one of my little kind of franchise out there. Please, thank you so much, Skeet. It's lovely, honestly, amazing. Thank you so much for doing this and getting back on the artwork. If anyone wants to go over to Skeet's site, I'll put a link on the Skeet's site. Do pop over there. Remember, Skeet was the master of the two covers, Volume 1 and Volume 2, so we've got Skeet to thank for them as well. Skeet, you're a star, sir. Look after yourself. Let's kick straight off with Mr. JJ Campanella. Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this November 2010 Science News Update. I'm your host for this evening's scientific reporting endeavors, Jim Campanella. Let's just get started. The first story is an update already on the exoplanet story I told about last month. You may remember how I mentioned that no habitable exoplanets had yet been found, and I thought that I waxed quite eloquent on why that was such a worry to astronomers and biologists. Well, there was a report, and then a repudiation of that report, all in the last month or so, that a habitable planet had been found. If that sounds confusing to you, I suspect it is no less confusing to the astronomers. Let me explain. In late September, about the time that I was recording my October science news, an experienced group of U.S. astronomers made headlines with news of the first extrasolar planet likely to be hospitable to life. The planet lay at a distance from its parent star at which water could be liquid, The report was in the Astrophysical Journal and was written by Dr. Paul Butler of the Carnegie Institution for Science and his colleagues. Butler was quote-unquote thrilled because it only took 15 years to find a habitable planet. 
Butler also said in a press conference, quote, over the next 10 years, I would be shocked if there weren't many dozens of these things, unquote. Butler's planet was one of six known to be orbiting the red dwarf Gliese 581, the current record holder for most planets orbiting a star other than the sun. Well, as the poor schmucks who invented cold fusion will tell you, if no other scientist can reproduce your work, then it becomes worthless and meaningless instantly. A Swiss team of veteran planet hunters has now cast some doubt on Butler's finding. Less than two weeks after Butler's paper was published, Dr. Francesco Pepe of the Geneva Observatory in Switzerland announced at the extrasolar planet meeting in Torino, Italy, that a combination of old and new data acquired by his team showed no sign of that planet that Butler's group had dubbed Gliese 581G. Pepe said, If a signal corresponding to the announced Gliese 581G planet was present in our data, we should have been able to detect it. Other astronomers say that only time and more studies will tell if the first exoplanet in the habitable zone has truly been found or not. How reliable are these Swiss scientists? Well, in 2009, when they made their last report about planets orbiting Gliese 581, they had 119 measurements of the star's wobble, a telltale sign of unseen planets tugging back and forth on the star. Now, 119 measurements may not seem like very many, but they were recorded over four years. Those measurements revealed a total of four planets circling the star. The team's latest report includes an additional 60 measurements made with the sensitive HARPS spectrograph on the telescope at La Silla, Chile, for a total of 6.5 years of observations. From these data, we can easily recover the four previously announced planets, says Pepe. However, we do not see any evidence of a fifth planet in an orbit of 37 days. Since this is an argument between scientists, it will only be resolved over time when one group or the other can show that their own data is more accurate. So far, I vote for the Swiss, who seem to be much more conservative and not quite so quick to jump the gun and into the spotlight. Only time will tell, though, how things eventually turn out. Again, in a reference to a story from last month, I wrote about how accents and truth are perceived by listeners. After writing that, I became a bit more intrigued about what sorts of papers might be out there that deal with voice and accent and perception and the like. And I was surprised to see that there's actually a journal called, yes, the Journal of Voice. I thumbed through the latest issue from October and found some very interesting stories. Probably the most interesting was one entitled, Noise and Tremor in Perception of Vocal Aging in Males. The story was written by Dr. James Harnsberger and his associates at the University of Florida. Basically, they looked at several factors that they thought would alter perception about the age of a male speaker including voice tremor, speaking rate, and quote-unquote added noise, which I interpreted as being phleminess. To identify the acoustic and perceptual correlates of the aging voice, voice quality was systematically manipulated using computer resynthesis to determine its effect on perceived age. Ten young male voices were resynthesized using two levels of phleminess and two levels of tremor, under a speaking rate manipulation. An increase in speaking rate is common in older male voices. These recordings were then played to 40 listeners in an age estimation task. Two sets of comparison materials were also included for evaluation. 
the unmanipulated samples from a 150 voice database of young, middle-aged, and old voices, and disordered voice samples representing natural manifestations of the voice qualities of interest. Why do the authors think that it's important how we identify voices? Let them tell you themselves. Here is the opening paragraph from the paper. Quote, Speaker age is an attribute of the speech signal that is conveyed simultaneously with the signal's linguistic content along with many other indexable properties of speech, such as a speaker's emotional state, health, stress level, and dialect, to name a few. It is an aspect of the speech signal that is easily identified by listeners and may, like other indexable properties, influence the perception of linguistic information, particularly in more degraded listening environments. Finally, speaker age is certainly a confounding factor in the analysis of pathological voices, with subsequent consequences for the assessment and treatment of voice disorders. Unquote. Okay, that's a bit much. How about the, let's try the opening paragraph of the methods section. Quote, The purpose of this present study was to determine the perceptual relevance of selected cues by systematically manipulating them in age perception tests. Two primary cues were selected, noise and tremor, corresponding to two attributes of voice that may co-occur or increase with chronological age. These cues were manipulated through resynthesis in combination with two secondary cues under examination, that is, mean fundamental frequency and speaking rate. Unquote. Okay, well, that's better. So, old people talk faster, have a lower mean voice frequency, and sound tremory and phlegmy. And young men have slower voices at a higher frequency without the tremors or the phlegminess. Well, that was their prediction. So what was the result? They found that higher speaking rates, the highest degree of synthesized tremor, and the highest degrees of synthesized phlegminess all shifted the listener's perceptions in an additive manner. In other words, the listeners concluded that the mean perceived age of the young male voices were older by an average of 12 years. So someone who was 30 would have been perceived on average as being 42. Some listeners went way beyond the 12-year average and gauged individual voices as being shifted by at least a generation up to 25 years older. So a normal male voice at 30 would be judged as being in their mid-50s. When the researchers altered the fundamental frequency of the voices and shifted it downward, there was no statistical effect on the perceived age of the speaker. They concluded that voice quality, both tremor and flemminess, and speaking rate are all perceptually relevant cues of determining age in male voices. I don't know of any practical applications for this knowledge, except for psychologists or for anybody who is an actor or a narrator. These cues are actually rather good things to know. They can make a voice portrayal of someone who is older much more believable and accurate. So all of you who are Starship Sofa narrators out there, take note. I certainly will be doing so for my future narration duties. The next story gave me a bit of a shiver because my own website, Uvula Audio, has been podcasting the narration of At the Mountains of Madness for the last few weeks. And by the way, Craig Nickerson, our narrator on that novel, does a fantastic job, and I recommend it highly to anyone who likes H.P. Lovecraft. Just follow the website link here on the sofa that accompanies my name and go over to the adult bookstream area. Anyway, if you're not familiar with Lovecraft's master work, it follows a group of American explorers in the Antarctic 
who come across the remains of an ancient civilization on the order of millions of years old, set in the highest mountain peaks on Earth, which have been hidden down there. The story is terrifying, despite the fact that it's been used as the fodder for a thousand other lower-quality stories since it was written 70 years ago. By the way, Guillermo del Toro is making a film version of At the Mountains of Madness that should be coming out next year, with Ron Perlman presently cast as the lead scientist, Dr. Dyer. What does this have to do with a science story? No, no one has found any Chagoths yet, but they have discovered some other very cool stuff down in Antarctica. Buried deep beneath East Antarctica's ice sheet, the Gambersef Mountains are the world's most invisible range, and probably the least known of any mountain range on Earth. New research published last month in the Geophysical Research Letters by Dr. Stephen Cox at Caltech suggests that the overlying ice that's hiding them from view today could have preserved their rugged topography for the past 300 million years. Russian scientists first identified the Gombersefs in 1958 as part of a survey during the International Geophysical Year, and geologists have since puzzled over them about how that range came to be. The mountains are in a stable part of the continent that hasn't seen much tectonic activity in more than 500 million years. Cox says, quote, The Gambersefs are either really, really old or some big part of the tectonic puzzle is missing here. Cox's team tried to answer the question of how they came about by looking at how quickly the mountains eroded over time. Because the range is buried under thousands of feet of ice, researchers had to study it indirectly. Cox's team did this by probing mineral grains at the bottom of Pride's Bay in East Antarctica, where pieces of rock that washed off the Gambersefs ended up. Grains of the mineral apatite were analyzed to determine the cooling age of the rocks. That told how fast the mountains actually eroded. Cox's team analyzed the apatite in two ways. The amounts of uranium, thorium, and helium it contained, and the number of quote-unquote fission tracks left by decaying uranium. They used all that to build a cooling history of the Gombersefs. The team concluded that over the past 250 million years, Mountains Inlet of Pride's Bay eroded just 2 to 5 kilometers. That is 10 times slower than modern erosion in places like the Alps. Earlier studies had suggested slow Antarctic erosion over the past 118 million years, but this new study goes back even further in time and supports the idea that the Gambersefs are really ancient. Cox says that, quote, cold glaciers or ice sheets atop the mountains could have protected them from wearing away, unquote. Wow, just imagine what might be down there under all that ice. It boggles the mind and the imagination. I know that if I was Guillermo del Toro and I was updating and rewriting at the Mountains of Madness for modern audiences, I would certainly start with global warming uncovering the Gambersefs and the remains of the old ones. Wow, imagine that. Anyway, I know Lovecraft would have been laughing his head off if he had survived until the actual discovery of the Gambersef Mountains in the late 50s. Okay. On to the next story, which I am almost loath to mention. Every time I bring up this topic, I get more depressed and more worried. I feel like somebody holding up a placard that says the end is near. Yes, if you hadn't guessed, this is a BPA update. BPA, if you don't follow this podcast regularly, is bisphenol A, which is a compound found in plastics which mimics the hormone estrogen. I have gone on at length in the past why this is so dangerous as an environmental toxin. 
Well, you may remember a few months back, I mentioned that cash register receipts actually have as much as a thousand times more BPA than can be found in any plastic bottle. At the time I mentioned it, no one knew how dangerous that actually was. Well, a new study in the journal Chemosphere this month by Dr. Daniel Zalko of the French National Institute for Agricultural Research shows unequivocal evidence that BPA from receipts can go through human skin and be absorbed into the body. Zalko and his co-workers collected pig ears from slaughterhouses within five minutes of the animals being killed. Then, in less than two hours, the tissues were in the lab where researchers removed the skin from the ears, cut it into tiny discs, and cultured each disc in a dish. The scientists then applied BPA at various concentrations to the dry outer surface of the skins. The lowest concentration used by Zalco was in the ballpark of what could rub off onto an equivalent area of skin from handling a standard receipt paper. After three days, more than half of the BPA had diffused through the skin and into the growth media. Zalco says, quote, In a living animal, the diffused chemical would likely be circulating in the blood throughout the body, unquote. Enzymes active in the skin transform the majority of BPA into metabolites known as conjugates. A conjugate is a version of the BPA with a chemical addition or add-on. BPA principally is converted into the compounds BPA glucuronide and BPA sulfate. To validate the value of pig skin as a human test replacement, Zalco's group also ran the BPA experiments using tiny samples of healthy human skin that had been removed from abdomens of roughly 40-year-old women during various surgical procedures. Again, almost half of the BPA passed completely through the skin, and Zalco cautions that this pass-through rate might be conservative since the cultured human skin samples weren't as fresh, and therefore not as porous as the pig ear skin had been. Moreover, far less of the BPA exiting the human skin was conjugated compared with the pig skin, and what had been transformed was less likely to be in the glucuronide form. In other words, a lot of that BPA was still in the active BPA form in the human skin. This is all very worrisome. Several companies are now working on BPA-free thermal receipt paper, but as consumers, I'm not sure that we will know the difference. I hope that the companies have enough sense to label the receipts BPA-free so that we can at least be able to handle receipts again without becoming paranoid. The next story of the night is another fish story. Sort of a continuation of the flying fish story from last month. I guess at some point I got sidetracked from all my ant stories and got onto fish somehow. Last month, the question came up of how it was that flying fish could fly. Well, this month's question is, how do blind cave fish navigate when they have no eyes at all to detect light? Doctors Gordon Mallinson and John Montgomery of the University of Auckland, New Zealand, tried to answer this question in the latest all-fish physiology issue of the Journal of Experimental Biology. The blind cave fish have no eyes at all. The authors explained that all fish sense their environment using velocity sensors on their skins and pressure gradient sensors along both sides of their bodies. These are known as lateral lines, and again, all fish have these. The cool thing is that for blind cave fish, these pressure and velocity sensors are their main sensors for detecting their surroundings, since that's pretty much all they have. The researchers were curious to know how the fish's surrounding hydrodynamic fields changed as they encountered obstacles. So they put the blind cave fish into a digital particle image velocimeter. This is a system they built to visualize the fluid 
flowing around the fish. This analysis is now going to sound very similar to how the flying fish were analyzed, but here we go. They released the blind cave fish, ranging in size from 40 to 60 millimeters, into this velocimetry system, and then they shined a plane of laser light into the tank and filmed the water swirling as the fish swam through the laser plane. Following the fish as it paralleled a wall as it swam was easy. Quote, they follow surfaces, so if you have a square tank, they just keep going around and around the outside, unquote, according to the authors. However, recording the fluid flows as the fish approached a wall head-on was much more difficult. The scientists had to direct the fish out into quote-unquote open water by placing an obstacle in its path and forcing them to head directly into the opposite wall. They analyzed the velocity of the water flowing around the fish's nose and along its sides. Then they calculated the pressure field that the fish detects with its lateral lines. They compared the pressure field surrounding the fish in the open water with the pressure field as it approached a wall head-on to determine how the water movement changed around the fish. Montgomery said, quote, When the movement is away from a wall, there is a stagnation point. That's where the flow is coming straight into the nose of the fish. From the point of view of the fish, the flow stops, and there's a very high pressure, unquote. They found that as the fish approached the wall head-on at a distance of 8 to 12 millimeters, the team detected the stagnation point widen and spread across the fish's nose. The stagnation point pushed the pressure way up around the nose of the fish, warning the fish that it needed to change course to avoid collision. When the blind fish swam parallel to the wall at a distance of less than 4 to 6 millimeters, the authors saw the stagnation point slip around to the side of the fish's head, closer to the wall, and spread wide as the pressure rose. So the pressure at the side of the fish head also dropped as the fish neared the wall. Next, the team was curious to find out how these pressures and velocity features varied as the fish swam at different speeds and distances from the wall. After additional study, they found that the fluid flow patterns hardly changed even at the highest speeds. The authors said, quote, Everything just scales with the velocity and the form doesn't change. If a fish is sensitive to a certain relative change, say a doubling, it will pick it up at pretty much the same distance irrespective of how fast it's swimming, unquote. In other words, speeding up does not help the fish detect more distant objects because the hydrodynamic changes in the water occur at the same distance from the obstacles regardless of their speed. Also, moving fast gives the fish less time to respond to any structure nearby. So you would expect that the blind cave fish would swim more slowly in new places, but that doesn't seem to be the case. They swim faster in unfamiliar water. Now, the question then became, why would they have such odd behavior? Well, here's one possible answer. The authors suggest that by swimming fast, the fish increases the fluid flow around their body, making the hydrodynamic signal stronger and easier to interpret in a noisy environment. They also suspect that the fish probably keep close track of the location of the stagnation point and other flow features on the surface of their bodies. Montgomery says, quote, They can use all that flow data to interpret how things change in time and space to help them avoid obstacles in the dark. Unquote. The last story of the evening was suggested to me by Tom Alertz, one of our listeners. And forgive me if the pronunciation of your name is way off, Tom. Tom noticed this story in the popular press, and I tracked down the original article. It is entitled, quote, Feeling the Future, Experimental Evidence for 
Anomalous Retroactive Influences on Cognition and Effect by Dr. Daryl Bem of Cornell University. The paper is in press in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Well, for those of you who didn't figure it out immediately, yes, the paper is about one of the oldest tropes in science fiction, telepathy and precognition. Bem claims to have the first unbiased evidence of psi powers in humans. The fact that his name is the standard acronym for bug-eyed monster is only appropriate frosting on the cake, I guess. Bem tells us that a survey of 1,100 college professors in the United States found that psychologists were more skeptical about the existence of psi powers than any of their colleagues in the natural or social sciences. 34% of psychologists in the sample declared psi to be impossible, a view expressed by only 2% of all other respondents, which, by the way, I find just absolutely an amazing statistic. Bem tries to be as unbiased in his presentation as possible, pointing out the two major stumbling blocks for psi researchers. He points out that they are, quote, empirical and theoretical. The empirical challenge is to provide well-controlled demonstrations of psi that can be replicated by independent investigators. Bem tells us that that is the major goal of his article. The theoretical challenge, on the other hand, is to find an explanatory theory for the alleged phenomenon that is compatible with physical and biological principles. So what does Bem report in this study? He did nine experiments involving a thousand participants, and he tested, quote, retroactive influences by time-reversing well-established psychological effects so that individuals' responses were obtained before the putatively causal stimulus events occurred, unquote. So basically, he tested whether anybody could detect an effect before the cause. My favorite of the nine experiments was entitled Precognitive Detection of Erotic Stimuli. I guess the idea is that sex is such a strong stimulus that it may be able to stimulate psi abilities. Let me explain. 100 Cornell undergraduates, 50 women and 50 men, were recruited for the experiment. The experiment took 20 minutes and was run completely by computer. After several minutes of New Age music and pretty cosmic pictures to calm the test subjects, pictures of two curtains appeared on the computer screen side by side. One of them had a picture behind it and the other one had a blank wall. The task of the testee was to click on the curtain that they felt had the picture behind it. The curtain was then opened, permitting the testee to see if they selected the correct curtain. There were 36 trials for each of the testees. The test photos included, quote, several pictures that contain explicit erotic images, that is, couples engaged in nonviolent but explicit consensual sexual acts, unquote. Each session of the experiment included both erotic and non-erotic pictures randomly intermixed, and the main psi hypothesis was that the participants would be able to identify the position of the hidden erotic picture significantly more often than chance. Chance would put it at 50%, since you have one in two chance of getting it every time. The results. In the first retroactive experiment, women showed statistically reproducible psi effects to highly arousing stimuli, but men did not. Because this appeared to have arisen from men's lower arousal to the stimuli used, the experimenters introduced different erotic and negative pictures for men and women in subsequent studies, using stronger and more explicit images from the internet sites for men. 
They also provided two additional sets of erotic pictures so that men could choose the option of seeing male-male erotic images and women could choose the option of seeing female-female erotic images. Okay, now here is the tricky part of the experiment. Even though it looks like the experiment was a test for clairvoyance, it was not. The participants were told that a picture was hidden behind one of the curtains, and their challenge was to guess correctly which curtain concealed the picture. That was not true. Neither the picture itself nor its left-right position was determined until after the participant recorded his or her guess, making the procedure a test for detecting a future event. That is, it was actually a test for precognition. Could the testee predict where the photo would eventually appear? Across all hundred sessions that were performed, participants correctly identified the future position of the erotic pictures significantly more frequently than the 50% hit rate expected by chance. That is, it was a hit rate of 53.1%. That is in contrast to the hit rate on the non-erotic pictures, which didn't really significantly differ from chance at 49.8%. The difference between erotic and non-erotic trials was itself statistically significant according to the author. Because erotic and non-erotic trials were randomly interspersed in the trial sequence, Bem states that this significant difference also serves to rule out the possibility that the significant hit rate on erotic pictures was an artifact of inadequate randomization of the left-right positions on the screen. Okay, do I believe any of this? Well, first of all, I have to give Bem credit for lots of thought in his experimental design. He was trying very hard to get around all the complaints and problems that others have had with their own psi experiments. And okay, based strictly on statistics, he is seeing an effect, but it just seems to me to be barely above the level of pure chance at the 50% level. I am not convinced, at least partly because the statistics barely support his point of view. They suggest that there is barely an effect. Also, Ben goes on later in the article to do a bunch of hand-waving about quantum physics that suggests that he has an explanation for psi effects, but he doesn't really. In fact, his theories are so weak that he invokes the specter of science history. He says that there have been plenty of times in history when a scientific phenomenon was observed long before its explanation, and that psi phenomenon is just another example. I beg to differ. The big difference is... With all those other phenomenon, they could be reproduced by any scientist anywhere in the world with the proper know-how and equipment. And until I see that with Ben's experiments, then I will very much doubt his outcome. Although it would be very cool, I have my doubts as to whether any of Ben's work will ever fall into that category of clearly reproducible phenomenon. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Get that flabbiness out of your voice, unless you want to sound like your dad, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Jim, I always say this. Always a pleasure, sir. Never a chore. <laughs> now, just before we actually jump into Amy H. Sturgis's little article there, a slight, I've had a slight problem with my hard drive there. And I just want to put it out to anyone out there who can help. <laughs> Hasn't. And I've gotten quite a number of stories back. 
but I've got a few of these external hard drives and one went down. <laughs> we lost one of the engines, sir. One of them went down and it was all of it's all right. Yes, back up, back up. I know. Don't go. I know. You know what I mean? <laughs> Silly old fool, Tony. But I lost them all. Lost all the stories. Lost everything. Lost backups of old, you know, the the original shows. I mean, I've got the original shows up online anyways, like, you know, up there, hidden away until they come in the shop, until they get the shops get built. But there's a load of things I've lost on this external hard drive. If there's anyone out there can get it off, you know, I'll be much appreciated. Because I got a little, well, I got a quote for it, and it was like hundreds. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, bloody hell, I'm not going to just throw all that away. So... There you go. It's it's kind of at the moment she's we're we're still running. Do you know we're firing on three engines there. I've got they like say I've got a load of stories. You know I just kind of went round everyone and emailed everyone, and everyone you know who's actually narrated has been kind enough to kind of send these stories down. They've got them <laughs> backed up and backed up. <laughs> but there you go. Anyways, let's kick in with Amy H. Sturgis looking back at genre history. Ames. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. Today I'd like to talk about a novel, and not just any novel. Here's what Ray Bradbury had to say about it. Quote, For anyone interested in the history of speculative fiction, this book is an absolute necessity. Hardly faint praise. This book was by one of the acknowledged fathers of science fiction, and yet it was lost for over 130 years. I'm talking about Jules Verne's lost novel, Paris in the 20th Century, which he wrote in 1863, but which wasn't published until 1994. This is Jules Verne's great dystopian novel, And in a couple of very important ways, it's challenged and rewritten the way that we understand Jules Verne. Jules Verne, of course, is a household name, especially to genre fans like us. Born in 1828, died in 1905. The French Jules Verne is largely appreciated by most as one of the pioneers of speculative fiction, His scientific romances, such as A Journey to the Center of the Earth in 1864, From the Earth to the Moon in 1865, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in 1869-1870, Around the World in 80 Days in 1873, and The Mysterious Island in 1875 have really sealed his legacy. And, of course, the prevalence and popularity of steampunk today means that Jules Verne has an ever-widening circle of admirers and appreciators. You would think, with all of the popular and scholarly attention that Verne has received, that there's really nothing new under the sun that we could talk about or discover regarding Verne. But that is not the case, as Paris in the 20th century proves. So let's go back to 1863. Jules Verne had published his first novel, Five Weeks in a Balloon, which met with instant and enthusiastic success. It also established Verne's trademark, the 
optimistic story of technological progress and the great adventures that would follow from it. Five Weeks in a Balloon became the first of many successful so-called scientific romances. The fact is, Verne had different and more things to say. It's just that his publisher thought that no one would want to hear them. After Five Weeks in a Balloon, Verne submitted Paris in the Twentieth Century to his publisher Pierre Jules Hetzel, and Hetzel turned it down in a letter that said, "My dear Verne." I would give almost anything not to have to write you today. You have undertaken an impossible task, and like your predecessors in such matters, you have not been able to pull it off well. It is much below the level of your five weeks in a balloon. If you were to reread it one year from now, you would surely agree with me. It is tabloidish, and the topic is ill-chosen. I was not expecting perfection. To repeat, I knew that you were attempting the impossible. But I was hoping for something better. Ouch! And so, instead of getting Paris in the twentieth century, readers next received from Jules Verne a journey to the center of the earth in 1864. Paris in the twentieth century languished until 1994, when it was published in French, and 1996, when it was translated into English. The Jules Verne reflected in Paris in the twentieth century is not quite so optimistic about what technological progress means. First off, the Paris of nineteen sixty that he describes would be instantly recognizable to us as the world that we inhabit today—a commercial world of commuters in gasoline-powered cars, a world in which. Multinational corporations don't even really try to hide the fact that they're pretty much running things behind the scenes, and sometimes in front of the scenes. And to keep in touch across the world, they use a machine that looks quite a bit like a fax. This is a world in which the cavalry warfare of Jules Verne's time is unthinkable because of the incredible sophistication of tactical military weapons that take the place of the rank and file soldier. The tale begins on August thirteenth, nineteen sixty, in Paris. The Corporation of Instructional Credit is holding what amounts to a graduation ceremony, and young Michel Jerome Dufresnoy is one of the graduates, a literature major who wants to write poetry and plays. When he goes to receive his diploma, however, he's heckled by the crowd. The reader realizes what an outsider Michel is, because in Jules Verne's futuristic world, industrialism and technology has not freed humans; it's made them sterile, uninspired, pragmatic to a fault. Everything must be useful, including people. And to the career-minded Parisians of 1960, literature in no way is useful. Mathematics, engineering, the sciences, even economics—those are the useful things to study. Michel spends the rest of the day in a sort of emo angst bubble, wandering around, searching bookstores and libraries for a work of literature, and finding only technical manuals. Things go from bad to worse for poor Michel. 
The lackluster job that he finds to pay the bills is banking for a bookkeeper, but eventually the bookkeeper flees France for Germany and the job disappears. He falls in love with a young woman, but her grandfather loses his job as the very last professor of rhetoric at a university. Hey, you don't need rhetoric anymore, right? And so she falls on hard times as well. Then an unprecedented winter slams France, freezing everything inside. And I do mean everything. Officials use electricity to zap people who've been frozen to death in the rivers back to life. And the weather creates tremendous hardship for the already poverty-stricken young Michel, who subsists on special cheap bread made from coal. Yes, I said coal. Eventually... Surrounded by the frozen, starving city and its cynical, cold inhabitants, Michel stumbles around in a fevered state, unappreciated and unwanted, completely disconnected from the machine that is the society around him. And eventually he succumbs to the elements. Yeah, okay, so maybe it's not what you might call motivational literature. One of my students characterized it as, and I'm paraphrasing here, boo-hoo, the world of the future doesn't like my poetry, I guess I'll lie down and die. I think that's a bit harsh, but hey, I guess essentially accurate. The fact is, the indifferent, cruel world that Michel inherits contains some of Verne's most far-sighted and astute predictions For example, the world of 1960 that he describes has skyscrapers and gas-powered cars, high-speed trains, calculating machines like computers, telegraphic communications like fax machines. For criminals, there's the electric chair. And for enemies, there's military technology that pretty much spells mutually assured destruction. And though Verne missed the mark in terms, well, at least of my context in my country, of the ascendancy of scientific and mathematical education, there is perhaps something to be said for his view of education taking on such incredibly practical and vocational flavors, as opposed to a more classical education model of creating the well-rounded and critical thinking three-dimensional individual. And then, of course, there's the unexpected weather patterns that seem to be somehow related to the technological progress on the planet. Okay, maybe it's not the biggest shock in the world that Jules Verne would write a story that predicted future developments, but it is perhaps a bit more shocking that Verne would write a story about a future a technologically progressive future in which a Jules Verne literally couldn't survive. If you're a fan, like I am, of a good bleak dystopia now and then, I recommend this book very much. Now we come to the big so what of the segment. How has this really challenged or changed our perceptions of Verne? I'd say there are two ways. First, there have been recently a group of scholars who have suggested Verne's claim to the title pioneer of science fiction is not, in fact, earned. 
that seems strange to a lot of people, me included. I have a hard time believing that an author who created, for example, Captain Nemo's Nautilus wouldn't be considered science fiction. But they used a very narrow definition of the term that is, in a sense, futurism. And they claim that Verne really didn't produce works that are futuristic enough. You might ask, well, what about his story in the year 2889? Well, in fact, scholars mostly seem to agree now that that story, although it has been published as Jules Verne's, was really written by his son. However, the publication of and study of and appreciation of Paris in the 20th century really has refuted this group of scholars. It's incredibly hard now to suggest that Jules Verne didn't write futuristic fiction. But there's a second way that this challenges our perceptions of Verne. Here I'd like to quote scholar Arthur B. Evans. He says, quote, Quite simply, this novel's basic storyline contradicts the general public's popular image of what a work by the legendary Jules Verne should be, i.e., an exciting industrial age epic which glorifies scientific exploration and technological innovation. In contrast, despite its very frequent, very Vernian, detailed descriptions of high-tech gadgetry and its occasional flashes of wit and humor, this dark and troubling tale paints a future world that is oppressive, unjust, and spiritually hollow. End quote. Now, some scholars have claimed that you can see Verne getting a bit more pessimistic toward the end of his life, but this is his second novel. Here he's not looking at what progress will look like. He's looking at what its costs might be. And this suggests all sorts of things about the complexity of Verne's notions of the future and, frankly, the influence of his publisher, Hetzel, on what ideas Verne ultimately was allowed to explore. And so, Paris in the 20th century gives us a new light in which to view Jules Verne, the prophet of future technology, and not always the optimist. And it also gives us a new lens through which to view our own world and see how it measures up to Verne's hopes and Verne's fears. I hope you've enjoyed this, and I look forward to soon looking back with you once more into genre history. Hey, Guimi, thank you so much, and do give my love to your mum. Hope she's hanging in there, doing fine. So we have an interview with Tad Williams, and I just wanted to ask Tad Williams, where does the name Tad come from? Because I've always wondered that, because your name's Robert Paul Williams. <laughs> yeah, it is a bit odd, isn't it? Um, well, in America, Tony, I don't know if you know this, but in America, there was a very famous comic strip, you know, a newspaper comic strip for years and years um, called Pogo by a man named Walt Kelly. And it was, it's, it's, you know, sort of among the aficionados of newspaper comic strips. It's, it's one of the very favorites because it was extremely clever and beautifully drawn and all that. And it's set in, um, in uh, a swamp in the South. All the characters are animals. Pogo himself is a possum. Um, and they all speak with these very funny, very ornate Southern, uh, the Southern dialect. And, um, in, in Southern dialect, Tad is actually, uh, means small or little, or, you know, we would say, like, you've probably run across it in the word tadpole. 
Um, and so Tad was just a nickname when I was little, and it just literally meant just that, the little one or something like that. Um, but then it just stuck, and I never have used anything else. So um, whenever anybody calls me Robert, it usually means that they're a telemarketer. You know, or <laughs> oh, you're, in, days, oh, you're in trouble off your wife. <laughs> exactly, or in the old, no, no, even she would, I don't think she, I don't think if somebody said that around me, neither of us would even look up if somebody <laughs> called me Robert. We just, it's not a name I've ever used particularly. It's just on, you know, my sort of official stuff. So now I've been Tad pretty much as long as I remember. What I'd like to do as well, you know, what were you doing, Tad, and before the, the, your success with Dragonborn? Because I remember when Dragonborn came out, because I was, I suppose in my youth, I was a little bit of a tinker, do you know what I mean? I wasn't, I never really yeah. stuck in that school, and I didn't read until I was all yeah. oh, well into me, I think at 21 before I picked up a first book. And then right. you, your books were one of the first ones I kind of stumbled on. And actually, yours were, the, I got them all in hardback, first edition, and I made... <laughs> I sold, well, bless you. Yeah, I sold them actually, mind you, and I made a lovely little profit off them. But what were you doing before? Because that was such a big hit and a big success. What were you doing before that? Well, I actually had one book before that, um, which was published in England, but uh, didn't really, nobody kind of saw much of it, which was called Tell Chaser's Song, which actually um, did pretty well in the States. Um, that was a fantasy novel about cats. And for some people, it's still the thing I'm known for to this day. Um, but before that, I was doing any number of things. Um, I, I, I come from uh, Palo Alto, California, which is the Stanford University town, and I grew up in an atmosphere of, um, you know, fairly benign, kind of supportive, pro-creative uh, family and friends. And so I, I had decided very early on in my life that whatever I was going to do, it was going to be something creative. Um, I did, uh, you know, I, I did a visual arts, I did theater, um, later on I did radio, I played in rock and roll bands, I mean, I did all these kinds of, um, you know, performance-oriented things, but I also just plain liked making things. That was big for me, too, in the sense of making stories, writing songs, and so... To be honest, to begin with, it seemed as though it was only a question of, you know, which one of these things would work out for me. In retrospect, I look back and see, no, writing was clearly the best choice because, um, A, I'm a bit of a control freak, and although I love collaborating, it was something I could do on my own and in my own time, um, which was important. Because I was also, when I began as a writer, I was working, you know, a couple of other jobs um, just to make ends meet. So I had to be able to work at 2 o'clock in the morning or whatever was, you know, whenever I had free time. Um, and also, I think in general, I come from a very book-oriented family. Um, I come from a storytelling family. And I think that, you know, that it was kind of in my blood and I didn't really realize it because I was enjoying you know, playing in a band and making a lot of noise and, you know, things like that. Um, but now, now I look back and writing seems kind of like an obvious, an obvious path. You know, what I've, I find fascinating as well is, you know, you had Memory and Sorrow, that, that series out. Right. And most people think, yep, you know, stick to what you know or stick to what you've, the success. <laughs> then, then you go totally left to center and write like a fantastic other land, you know, a great series there, but science fiction. Thank you, Tony. I, I, yeah, you, you're not the only person who would who would have said stick to what you know. Some of my publishers felt the same way um, because, of course, it, it, in our field, as in many fields these days, um, you know, 
it's it's smarter to do the same from a purely economic point of view. It's smarter to do the same thing over and over and over again um, to develop your, you know, in 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 the present day terminology, to, to develop your brand. You know, to be very very known. For, I mean, to be like Dick Francis. Nobody has any question about what Dick Francis does. Either you don't know him at all, or you know him and you go, oh, the guy who writes the horse racing mysteries. You know, everybody knows that. Um, whereas I've always felt like I kind of have to love what I'm doing and therefore I have to sort of jump around a bit and, and try whatever story is now inside me wanting to be written. Um, but you know, as a result, you, you probably, you know, you, you probably, uh, you gain something, you lose something. I, I gained a lot from being able to do what I wanted and being able to do different kinds of things. Um, you mentioned the other land books. In the long run, also, those have introduced people to my work that wouldn't have known it otherwise, you know, especially in places like Europe where, you know, that I was in one kind of a category and then the other land books came out and were mainstream and, you know, now they're doing a big uh, role-playing, you know, MMORPG um, based on other land and they did a huge radio play in Germany and, you know, so there's different things have come because of them, but certainly at the time, it's, it's made people a little nervous in the publishing end of things that I was jumping around that way. It, it does feel like you, you always want to like, or strive to create like these whole new universes. Is, is this, a, the, I don't know, like a restless writer inside you as well? Or is, is it just fun to, to move on and just totally create something new? Uh- Oh, oh, it's definitely it's definitely both. I mean, there there's no question. There's a restlessness in the sense that um, I, I've always been a writer who needs to be really engaged with my material to do my best work. I mean, I I, I think most writers are that way, but I certainly am. I need to feel like this is the story I have to write. And um, but also, no, you're absolutely right. There's one of the things about um, you know being a writer is a bit like being an entrepreneur in a sense, in that there's the whole startup phase of things, which has all of its own joys, and then there's sort of like the day-to-day thing of actually doing the project, which is sort of like running the business, you know. Um, And as much as you love it, for me anyway, the starting up is by far the most fun because it's the most free. You know, you haven't committed to anything. You're just literally playing with ideas. It's glorious. You know, you walk around inventing entire cultures in your head and then throwing them out, you know, and saying, well, what if I did this? What if I turned all these expectations completely upside down or just pushed them off sideways here? And it's, it's, it's wonderful fun. So one of the frustrations occasionally with a really long stories is that how long you have to wait between those projects. And if I had to keep coming back to the same worlds over and over again, instead of getting to invent new things, I think I would feel like I was missing one of the most pleasurable parts of the experience. Would you say then, just with, with your, your writing like that, is that something that you take in the home as well? Are you a bit of a restless person in the home? Are, are you a, like a total home bird where you like to stay in one place, you know, and not really yeah, travel around? It's, I'm, I'm, I'm smiling while you're saying this because it's rather interesting. My wife, Deborah, who is also a longtime professional in the science fiction and fantasy field, and uh, is, is much more that person in our family. She's the one who has to constantly have stuff to do. She, she gets restless in that sense in a way that I don't. I, I'm, I'm kind of more 
as long as I have a project to work on in my head, that's really all I need, and I can be pretty much anywhere, and, and with my, my family and my, my loved ones, obviously. But, you know, that's really kind of the most important thing for me, and uh, writing itself is my, um, it's my meditation, you know, the, 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 the process of having the ideas and working them through and trying to, you know, balance all these complicated interactions in a way that, you know, okay, well, I'll move that around. It's just this very complicated kind of fourth-dimensional puzzle solving, and I love that. And <laughs> I could do that to the exclusion of everything else, really, almost. Well, you then come out with, and this, and I think this is probably, you know, I do like, you know, the Dragonborn. They was kind of my favorites if I was going to pick one, but then you have War of the Flowers came out, and I just loved that. You know, you had fairy politics and all sorts kicking in. But I, I actually, I was looking online, and it's, I was reading one review where it's saying, you know, it missed the critical acclaim that it should have, was, was rightly deserved. Did that upset you a little bit, that maybe this one didn't get, you know, because it was a cracking story, but it didn't get the, the critical acclaim? Or does that not even bother you in the slightest, you know, as long as you, you get the story out and everything works that way? Well, there's a, yeah, no, there's a, that's a good question, Tony, because there's actually three different kinds of um, kinds of things that are going on in terms of how how at least how I view my my career. Because here we're talking not just about individual projects, but we're talking about how it fits into one's career. Because I've been doing this now for 25 years or whatever, and you know, one of the things, and and in most ways, the most important thing is how one feels about the story. You know how you how you feel about how you did with the story. Did I do a good job? Did I do what I substantially achieve what I wanted to? That's one thing. Second thing is you know that what you're talking about, which is kind of like critical reception. You know the the sort of um, you know acknowledged uh, people in the field who say you know this is good, this is not, this is great, this is mediocre. So there's that part of it. And and then to be honest, and and you will understand this as a as a journalist, then there's that always uh, present thing of can I pay my mortgage, you know, or you know my rent, or feed my kids, or you know my car payment, you know whatever it might be, and and as you go through a career, these things shift around in terms of importance, and the, you know once you've gotten published, that's always the first. Just I just want to get published. <laughs> And then at first it's all about, you know, I want my peers and I want to, you know, be respected. And, and um, then later on it's also like, oh, my God, I, I, you know, now I have to make a living off of this stuff. So, you know, it's no longer just like, hey, anything that happens is great. No, you know, you also have to sell a certain amount of books. And those interactions begin in the process. And then all through the thing for most of us is just the fact of was I happy with what I did? Did I do a good job? And... I think with something like War of the Flowers, um, I was I was very happy with the book. I wanted to write it. It was uh, it had a lot of resonance for me personally, and I really enjoyed writing it. And I felt that I did what I wanted to do. So in that sense, I was very happy. To to the extent that it didn't get as much attention or sell as many copies as the others, you know. I mean, of course, that's you know that can be slightly disappointing. Um, and and you know I would be lying if I said those weren't factors and that I didn't have reactions. But I, I, I will say I am much less interested in reviews and things like that than I was 20 years ago or even 10, 15 years ago. You know, I just, I've been through so much now and I've realized that a bad review, even by some 
you know, some complete idiot on Amazon who probably has only read 16 or 17 books in their whole life and they're 16 years old and they're, you know, on the computer alone for the first time or whatever. And, you know, they get on your, your, your book page or something and go, oh, this guy's crap, you know. That will actually bother a writer more than a half a dozen glowing, you know, comments from, from people who clearly really got what you were trying to do. And once I realized that, at least about myself, but I think about a lot of writers, that I had this kind of uh, soft spot in my armor, um, I went, so, you know, why am I taking the, if, if, if I have to dismiss the bad reviews, why am I taking the good ones so seriously? You know, I, and, and then you start to de- change your relationship with reviews. So now, really, honestly, I have to say my, my, that the, the two other things are the, really the things that I care most about. I love people to review my books well. You know, that's great. But what I really care about is, is, you know, writing the book that I want to write and making it as good as I can make it. And then secondarily, you know, obviously I don't want my family and I to have to go live, you know, in a lay-by or, you know, under an overpass or something like that. So I'd like to at least sell some copies. Um, but that's, you know, that's kind of how it all's shaken out now at this point. You know what I really like as well is when you mentioned, oh, not like, but it's, it, certainly gets it hits you in the straight between the eyes 25 years you know you've been in this game 25 years because it makes me feel old as well because I was there kind of when you were starting <laughs> off and you know it does not fly over 25 years it's just scary it's stuff I, I, I run into I, you know I'd go out to do book signings or something and I have people come up to me with their kids you know and their kids <laughs> are like as old as mine and they're because we had ours a bit late and they'll say things to me like, I remember, you know, when I first saw Tell Chaser's song and I was in third grade and I told my mom, buy me that book. And I'll just look at these 30-something-year-old people and go, thanks, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, you know, I mean, uh, uh, but obviously, no, it's, it's a gift. It's a gift to have books that people still remember. And, you know, so, but, but yeah, it is funny to, to, to get to that point. Because, I mean, I'm, I don't know about how old you are, Tony, but, I mean, I still feel like uh, inside, like I'm 17 or 18. I'm a young 44. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. And, 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 and I'm, a, um, I'm, I'm a not so old, past 50 at this point. And, and um, but, you know, I, I, you know, we all still feel like the same way, but apparently the rest of the world doesn't agree with us, and it grows up everybody else, too, including people much younger than us, which seems very unfair. You know, you, you mentioned there what I picked up on as well, that anyone now can kind of go on and see Amazon onto your page and write like a really yeah. negative review is and it doesn't bother you but do you think it it does affect sales or anything like that you know being anyone can just come on now and just scribble a load of gunk you know i i have no idea whether it affects sales or not because the entire publishing industry has so many problems it would be kind of hard to pick one out um <laughs> I, I i do know for a fact that there are a lot of reader, a lot of writers, excuse me, that I know who are much more sensitive than I am for a number of reasons, you know. And um, because, I, for one thing, I've been doing performances since I was a kid, so you know, I'm I'm used to taking the the, the rough with the smooth. Um, but there are a lot of people who just won't even look at that stuff anymore because they're so scared of seeing something that will upset them, and then they won't be able to write for days. And you know, I've never had that feeling that I can't write because of something that somebody said about my work. So, you know, but 
that's the world we live in, and it's only going to get more so. I mean, you know, within 10 or 15 years from now, um, we're going to be getting feedback, you know, from, uh, you know our, our things are going to hit the wires, and we're going to be getting feedback, you know, within a few seconds, probably pumped right into our brains, you know. So if it's tough enough to have somebody tell you, this guy can't write at all, he should just kill himself. Can you imagine it when it's actually being broadcast into your inner ear? <laughs> You've just spent three years working on a book, and it's been on the you know it's been out on the uh, the electronic uh, tubes for like forty seconds, and people are already telling you, "God, you're crap! What a waste of time!" <laughs> We're gonna all have to toughen up a bit, I think. I mean, it's 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 nearly leading into my next question because I would love to find out about your serial format. You, you had like a serial online, which was going to you know eventually it's going to come into your shadow march and then your new book as well which you've got coming out i think it's this month as well shadow heart is that right the, the last of the shadow march books right yes tell yeah. us a, tell us a little bit about the, the online because you, you had this serial online format is that right well what happened was shadow march had this very long and strange history which i'll try and abbreviate as much as i can um it originally started way back when when um i was approached by um uh, some some artists among whom was roger dean the guy who you probably know from all the yes album covers he did all, and all right that yes stuff. yep yeah well, wonderful artist and he and some other people were, were thinking of doing a fantasy film. And they approached me about possibly writing a script. And for a variety of reasons, nothing to do with, with Roger or anybody working with him. It just didn't come to pass. Uh, lovely guy. I'd love to work with him someday. Um, and, but instead, so I still had that idea. And the more I thought about it, I said, well, you know, epic fantasy would probably actually work better in a television format. Because one of the things that people love about epic fantasy is the submersion. You know, they love to get into the world, to, to learn it, to feel like, you know, this is a place I can go, and it's not my world. It's a new, interesting world. And you can't really do that as well in a two-hour movie. But you can do that very well in sort of like the long-format television shows that run, you know, and run and run and run, at least miniseries length, if not longer. So I began to work on an idea for an epic fantasy TV series, which was the earliest stage of Shadow March. And then, um, for various reasons, that uh, we got all the way to the point where we got one of the high muckamucks at Science Fiction Channel who just absolutely did not get fantasy and didn't understand why, when there was already a Xena the Warrior Princess on television, why any more fantasy would be needed. Literally, that's what he said. You know, there's already Xena. Who needs more? So at that point, I went, fine, I get it. <laughs> you know, I, I'm preaching to the wrong audience here. So I began to think about, well, I'd still like to do this. I wasn't really ready to do another epic fantasy at that point, because I had just finished Otherland, and I was working on, about to start on the War of the Flowers. I said, I don't really want to write another epic fantasy book, but I'd love to work with this idea in another medium. So that was why I started to do it as a, an online thing. And we discovered very quickly, one of the things that you may not know about War of the Flowers, which I'm very pleased you liked, is I actually had to write that the same year as I did the online version of Shadow March so we could actually make enough money to, to live <laughs> because we made diddly off of Shadow March. In fact, we lost money over the process of the year or two um, because of setting up the websites and everything. And um, and you know, cuz it was nobody really knew how to advertise that this you know this was 2000 2001 so well actually we started in 1999 so things were a lot more sort of i don't want to say primitive when you're talking about 1999 but as far as the web goes they were so anyway 
So once I'd finished that and I said, I cannot take another two or three years to finish this story of having to write another book at the same time each year, you know, that's really too much. And um, so as a result, at that point, I said, okay, end of experiment. It was great fun. I learned a lot, but now I'm going to do the rest of the Shadow March book story. At, you know, I'll, I'll rewrite the online stuff to be a novel, and then I'll, you know, finish it up with the other books. Oh. And that's what I've been doing since. And it took me, I think, a while. Some people said that they thought Shadow March started a bit slowly, and I think that probably there's some truth to that because I was changing it from one format to another, and I hadn't had a chance yet to figure out what is the story really about, because the first many hundreds of pages had been written sort of like every week. I was putting up a new chapter. I wasn't, you know, plotting it in the way I would plot a novel. I was just making sure I was getting new information up for people. Um, so, you know, it was a really interesting process and a really interesting experiment, but but ultimately it, it, it sort of wound up being something that I was maybe a little ahead of its time. I, I still don't know if people have managed to find a way to, to, to make a profit off of fiction online, but people are now looking at it in a much more coherent way. That's what I was just going to ask you. you, know, you, you obviously, you, you think yourself that you were too ahead of your time with that. Would you try it again, or do you still think, even now, you know, with, with everything going on, because there has been some little bits of success out there with serial format, would you be tempted to dip your toes back in that area? Oh, I mean, I'm always open. Much, much to my my wonderful wife's frustration, I'm I'm always saying like, oh, that'd be fun. You know, <laughs> if I had my way, I'd probably be writing musical comedy. You know, this this year, just because that would amuse me and entertain me. You know, um, and God knows how we'd make any money off of it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And specifically, we we already are planning to do some of our own electronic publishing. But in this case, what we would probably be doing is is sort of writing stuff first and then offering it in electronic form. But somewhere up the line, yeah, I'd love to write serial fiction again. It was different and, and really interesting. You know, I mean, it was a completely different way of approaching something. And therefore, you know, it has all of these lures, all the allure of a new medium. So this Shadow March ends, does it end now with Shadow Heart? Is this your, your final one? Yeah, as I, as I seem to be a, a, a serial abuser of the term <laughs> trilogy, yes. Um, that's exactly what happened with this one also. The only time I've gotten it right with other, is with Otherland when I said, well, it feels like a trilogy, so I'll call it four books to begin with. Because, <laughs> um, you know, Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn, that wound up being, you know, with the, the hardcover of the last volume was so huge, it had to be broken into two paperbacks. And, you know, I, I, I decided to do Otherland as four books to begin with just to avoid that problem. And then I, you know, I, I, full of hubris, I thought, okay, this time I've got it licked. I know how to make something fit. So I'll make this the Shadow March series a trilogy. And then I got into the middle of the, the last volume, which was going to be Shadow Rise, and realized, you know, this thing is about twelve or 1,300 pages, and I haven't even started the end game. You know, I haven't started the last couple of hundred pages yet which is the point at which I, went, I said, this has got to be split. So, you know, this is, this is something clearly that I need a little work on, trying to figure out how to, how to hold <laughs> these things to three volumes. You've had 25 years of practice there, you know. <laughs> Another 25 or so, Tony, I should have it knocked. So if someone's coming to your work now, can they jump straight in with, the end, with Shadow Heart, or is it best to read them from the very beginning? Well, you know, I mean, honestly, it's pretty much like jumping in on the last book of Otherland or, or anything else. I mean, you can because I've put, you know, synopses in the books. 
Um, those are mostly meant to remind the readers of these incredibly complicated plots, but um, or give them a resource to look to when they want to. But um, you know, you could you could skip straight into the book if you wanted to just get a feeling for my writing. But if you didn't spend a lot of time with the characters, I think the resolution of their storylines might not be as satisfying as they will be for the people who've read the whole thing. Um, however, I mean, I'm also the the next thing I'm starting, which which. Um, is also going to be series books, but of a very different kind. The next set of books um, I'm writing are going to be more like, say, for instance, crime fiction in the sense that I plan for readers, first of all, they'll be shorter. Second of all, I plan for readers to be able to read them in order if they want to, but also to come to the series at any point and be able to pick it up like you could with, you know, um, uh, an Ian Rankin, uh, de- you know, Detective Rebus book or something, you know, where you don't have to have read all the other books. You, you don't have the, the richness of the world if you haven't read all the other books. But as a story, you can pick it up and enjoy the heck out of his, you know, his character and his, his writing in that one book without feeling like, oh, I'm jumping into a story partway through. And so I intend to do that with the next set of books. Is this going to be the Bobby Dollar books, is it? Yeah. That's, and, and that's one of the two titles we're messing with at the moment for how we're going to refer to them. I mean, I don't think that's the specific real titles, but we're either calling them the Bobby Dollar books or the Angel Delorial books um, because they're one and the same. That That's the same character in his two different incarnations. He's a what I would call a heavenly sort of mid-level functionary. Um, he, 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 he's an angel of sorts, but he's an earthbound angel who acts as an advocate for the dead. And he's part of this the earth itself is very much like Berlin during the cold war. It's, you know, where the people from both sides meet and have very limited powers, but there's also a great deal of maneuvering going on. Um, and of course it's the war between the cold war between heaven and hell and what happens to him and what makes his story significant is he winds up. Um, in the middle between both sides, uh, um, as is kind of the case with, oh, you know, sort of, I mean, this is kind of maybe a little, also a little bit like espionage fiction. He kind of winds up in the no man's land between the two sides and um, trying to solve, you know, the the, the, the mysteries that, that happened to him that, you know, in, in the best fictional fashion wind up being far bigger and more important than anybody could have guessed. Um, and so... And I'm going to write these more like crime books where, where you could pick up any one of them and read it without having read the others. But, of course, they will work best for people who've you know, seen the whole arc and watched the characters develop and the plot lines go in and out over time. You know, Todd, you mentioned there yourself, complicated plots. <laughs> what's, it yeah. like, what's it like for you when you're actually writing? These, you know, like you say, you've got so much going on in some of these volumes. How do you keep a track of everything? You know, Tony, I don't really know. I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, and, I, and I'm not trying to liken myself to, to you know, um, some incredible, you know, Olympic athlete or something. But, I mean, it, it is a bit like saying, well, you know, to a gymnast, well, how is it that you do that spin jump thing? And, you know, it's like I've been doing it for a long time. Um, I keep it almost all in my head. It works better for me that way. As soon as I start writing things down, they start to solidify in a certain way, whereas when it's all just in my head, I can kind of play games with different ways of things happening. And, you know, it's kind of like a big fourth dimensional, you know, those tile puzzles where you slide one piece over to move another piece up. Well, it's like if you can imagine that happening in three dimensions plus with a time 
time axis as well. You know, I'm kind of doing that in my head all the time. So that's about as much as I can say. I mean, it's just for some reason that's something I feel comfortable doing. And, and, I, and I say that to other people and they look at me like I'm nuts. But <laughs> that's just something I particularly enjoy. And I've kind of built what I do around that a little. I like to juggle these things. I like the serendipity of having enough plot lines and characters that, that they begin to make things happen with unexpectedly by interacting with each other in my mind. And now you've also as well, and I think this is going on at this moment, isn't it? You're, you're writing Ordinary Farm with your wife, Deborah, as well? Yes. So yeah, that's how, right. How We're is, on the second of the Ordinary Farm books, which is almost finished. What's, I was going to ask you, like, well, what is that like to write with someone? And then how is it to write it with your wife? Because now, am I right in thinking your wife's also, like, say, your business manager as well? Yes, and uh, Deborah and I actually, we met in the first place. Deborah, as I, as I, as I, think I've mentioned is a, is a, you know, long time uh, publishing person. So she, she started two different science fiction lists in England with her boss, Anthony Cheatham. And she's, um, you know, had a, had a long history in the field. She's always been interested in writing herself and has written herself. Um, so in that sense, it's kind of a natural fit. She's also, you know, a very early supporter of mine before we had any personal relationship. You know, she was the one who, who found and sort of broke the Dragon Bone Chair in England, which was sort of the making of me in the UK market. So, because um, as I mentioned, my previous book had kind of largely disappeared quite quickly. So, it, it, you know, in one sense, it's, it's, it's a gas. It's great because we both of us love this stuff so much, and it's been so much fun working on it and talking about it and planning things and all that. On the other hand, it's also difficult. And one of the reasons it's difficult is because I am a perfectionist. And, you know, I, I, I don't put out that many books, and I have some very set ideas about what I want to have go out under my name. And Deborah has had to put up with, <laughs> you know, being the, the, the more flexible of the two people um, in that process. And I think at times it's been, you know, rather difficult. Um, you know, what that, you know, what, what the, the, the verdict on the process is in the long run still remains to be seen. But it's, it's, been, it's been full of uh, joy and heartache, <laughs> both. But, you know, I, I can't say enough about the fact that she's just been really good about, you know, being patient with my very specific, you know, kind of control freaky approach to things. I also learned as well, and I didn't know this, that you also write comic books. I have been. I haven't done it lately, and and actually, I'm. Uh, that's an <laughs> that's another interesting topic as well. But yeah, I, I I have. I was writing Aquaman for a while. I, I I've done some other things. I would love to do more. The main problem is that, as with everything, I throw myself into it very, very, you know, like just right into the deep end, and I just go bloosh, and I want to do everything, and I research, and I plan, and and the problem is, unfortunately, is that for me, to be honest, comic books don't pay very well for the amount of time that I put into them. So that's been, you know, especially with publishing kind of being sort of dicey at the moment, that's kind of kept me away from comic books more than anything in the last couple of years, more than anything about comics themselves. I love the medium. I still read them all the time. You know, I'm, I read all kinds, everything from, you know, your bog standard superhero stuff to, you know, all, all the kind of more uh, strange and esoteric stuff being done in the field. And, you know, I, I love it. And I wish I could spend more time writing, I mean, working in that vein, because I grew up on comics as an art form. 
It must have, because this is the same article that I read, it must have been upsetting because didn't two Mirror Worlds cancel, you know, because the, the company went out of business? That must have been upsetting for you. To, oh, to... Wow. well, what's funny about that is that actually um, when I first heard from the people who were putting this company together and when they first proposed that I do something with them and told me what they were doing, um, I, I honestly said to them in, in a letter, I said something along the lines of, you guys are crazy. This is never going to work. Um, I said, but, you know, hey, what the heck? I'm, I'm, I'm willing to do it anyway because, you know, it would be fun to, to have the freedom to invent, you know, um, some worlds for comic book, you know, for, for, for comic books and stuff like that. But then the thing that happened to me was by the time I was absolutely right, their business plan was not very good in terms of what they were trying to do. They didn't really understand the field very well. And by the time it was, you know, by the time my comic was starting to be ready to come out, we already knew the company was basically over. And so, you know, I got to write two issues of one of the three different comics that were all going to be interlinking. Um, you know, just enough to sort of introduce a character and, 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 and tell one short story. Um, so it was very frustrating. But, you know, it was also one of those things where I, I thought I might have six months to a year. And instead, what I had was basically three days of actually <laughs> believing that, you know, that the thing I was working on might come out. So, yeah, that was a bit frustrating. You know, just... Getting back to, to your novels, and, and you've probably been, men- this has probably been mentioned a hundred times or thousands of times, you know, you are a, a kind of a big writer, you know, your, your books are kind of big, big writers. Is there ever a time where you thought, right, I'm going to write a story, a quick novel, I'm going to be in and out, 200 pages, and that is done, and then it's, it ends up being like a multi-volume series? I, well, I mean, in one sense, that's true of everything I've ever written. I never imagined anything that I've written would turn out to be as large as it did. Um, but in general, no. Once I started, the, I mean, when I started the Dragonbone Chair, I knew I was writing a sort of big fantasy. Actually, I did think that the Dragonbone Chair, I might tell the whole story in one volume. I honestly did. When I first started it, and, and this is a true story, I sent my publishers my outline and said, however, I am so... Um, ashamed of the whole idea in this day and age of writing another fantasy, tri- you know, epic fantasy trilogy. That that's that makes me feel so queasy even to contemplate that. That I honestly am going to do my best to do this in one single volume. And my publishers wrote back <laughs> very kindly and said, "That's very nice, Tad, and we hear you." And you know, um, the problem is, is you do realize that your outline is already 125 pages. <laughs> <laughs> At which point I said, oh, <laughs> and a lot of that outline, now that I think of it, says things like, and then some other stuff will happen. Um, so it wasn't, <laughs> I was just clearly not going to work out from the beginning. And so really what it's been more is that me spending most of the last 25 years trying to get to grips with my own tendency to write really big and to find other ways to do it. And it's one of the reasons that I keep doing short, short fiction, you know, which is like comic books, it doesn't pay anything. But it's, you know, it's such a delight to do something that you can actually finish in a day or two. Um, so, yeah, I, I have had that feeling of something kind of growing and expanding. You know, like you say, we're getting onto the kind of we're going to play a short story in a minute, and we're nearly finished the interview. But just with short stories, do you do you tackle the short stories when you're deep in the middle of an, another book, or do you like to kind of get a book finished and then you know put all your energies into that short story? Well, you know, 
honestly, the, the, the best possible result is that when, you know, short fiction or, or other projects come in between novels or just at the end of one novel so I can put them aside and go, okay, that's when I'll really concentrate on that. Um, but because of the constantly shifting and usually late um, nature of my, my writing schedule, um, I don't always have that luxury. And so I've had to learn how to um, kind of fit that other stuff in. But it actually doesn't, it's not that bad because one of the things that I've found is that there are times, especially in big, complicated stories, when you simply can't go forward. And some people mistake this for being some kind of writer's block thing where you're, you know, having a real problem with your writing. But in fact, it's just a process. It's just a part of a big project um, or any kind of difficult or complicated type of creativity. You know, sometimes you just have to walk away from it and, and wait for your subconscious to, to reassemble the parts in a way that fit better or to give you an insight that you didn't have yet, but that you needed. So that for me is fine. When those things come up, I say, fine, here, I'll take, you know, shadow heart or whatever, and I'll put it aside for a week or five days or three days or whatever while I'm waiting for that inspiration, and I will instead take that time to knock out this story that I had some vague little idea about that I'm supposed to turn in in another month or so for such and such an anthology. So I kind of fit them in where, you know, where there's space. Now, I was, when I was planning this interview, I put a little kind of shout-out on Twitter, just says, does anybody, you know, want to ask Todd a question? And I got, I got a number back saying, you know, ask him about baseball, because is baseball <laughs> your sport, Todd, is it? Yeah, well, it's certainly probably my, my favorite and my longest uh, term of, of, you know, sports I have followed in my life. And um, when I was living in England, actually, it kept me sane because I've become a basketball player in my adulthood. I didn't do it as much when I was a kid. But um, when I was in England, I couldn't really find a good, reliable basketball game anywhere close to where I lived in Highbury. But what I did do was found a bunch of, of baseball, of softball, American softball, which was getting very popular in the U.K. and back in the early 90s. And so I was, I, at one point I was in three different softball leagues and just having a brilliant time and, and made a lot of my best friends that I made there in England playing baseball. And, and of course, since it's England, in the pub afterwards, yeah. which is you know, a <laughs> crucial part of any experience and virtually any social interaction in the U.K. Um, but then, of course, one of the reasons that baseball is a big deal this year is that my hometown team, my beloved San Francisco Giants, which I've been following since I was like six years old, um, have finally won their first um, their first San Francisco championship ever. They, 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 the last time they won was in the early 50s when they were still in New York. So they won the World Series this year, and it was an absolutely fabulous year to be you know, a Giants fan. It was just an amazing season. So um, on that particular front, that part of my life, I could not be a happier guy. <laughs> it's funny, you know, because I had questions, you know, ask him what club he likes, and, you know, right. is, is the manager, because, you know, because over here, it's, you know, it's, it's football. Or, you know, oh, 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 absolutely. And, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, because Newcastle United's my team, and we're doing, you know, we're actually this year doing really good. And I was thinking, I wonder if, you know, his chairman's behind his, you know, Tad's cl- clubs. Right, well, right, right. Is, no, I, well, I, I would have guessed. 
Tony. Be honest with you, I would have guessed that you were that you were probably a, a Newcastle fan. Um, and uh, I remember them back from uh, when I was living in the UK, and I think they had Alan Shearer yes. back in the day. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And uh, when when they were one of the best teams, and of course he was one of the best players. My I lived in Highbury, so obviously that I was in the midst of the Arsenal folks. But I but I didn't realize when I first moved to the UK, my my Deb's family are all from the Midlands. And her brother-in-law, in particular, and 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 uh, and and his family—they're fierce, fierce Villa supporters. And um, so, when I first moved to England, Chris sent me a Villa shirt, um, and didn't tell me that it's not like the United States. That if you walk around, you know, the Highbury home grounds wearing a Villa shirt, you are going to attract attention. You know. Um, and it's not necessarily friendly. Whereas the United States, people might razz you a little bit, you know, and just kind of go, oh, you know, around here, if you were wearing a Dodgers shirt, people might just kind of go, oh, God, Dodgers fan, God, please, give me a break. But where there were actually a few moments, that the one day I was stupid enough to go out in my villa strip, um, there were a few moments where I actually feared for my life. So um, I was not real pleased with my brother-in-law. Um, but, yeah, so I... I, I uh, I understand the. the I, I I followed actually followed football pretty closely when I was there and cricket. I learned cricket because I'm a sports guy and I was and I couldn't get American sports regularly there. This was before Sky, um, so or at least we didn't have access to Sky. So um, I was uh, taking whatever I could get. Well, Todd, honestly, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time out. Oh well, thank you for having me. It's been fun. Yes, honestly, you did take good care. You too. There you go. So this actual story of Tad Williams first appeared in the new Space Opera 2. This is edited by Gardner Doswars and Jonathan Strawn and some great stories in there. So I'll put a link on to that book if you fancy yourself a little copy of that. This story is narrated by Nathan Lowell and to, to get a flavour of Nathan as well, I've got a little interview with him coming up straight after the story. So I'll play that straight after the story. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present. The Tenth Muse by Tad Williams When I first got to know Balchescu, I didn't like him much. A snob, that's what I thought he was, and way too stuck on himself. I was right, too. One of the things that drove me crazy is that he talked like George Sanders, all upper crust, but I didn't believe for a moment he actually knew who George Sanders was. Old Earth movies wouldn't have been highbrow enough for him. He also loved the sound of his own voice, whether the person he was talking to had time to listen or not. "'There you are, Mr. Jatt,' he said one day, stopping me as I was crossing the observation deck. "'I've been looking for you. I have a question.' I sighed, but not so he could tell. "'What can I do for you, Mr. Belchescu? "'Like I didn't have anything better to do coming up on twelve hours till Rainwater Hub "'than answer questions from seat meat. "'Sorry, that's what we call passengers sometimes. "'Bad habit. "'But I hate it when people think they're on some kind of a pleasure cruise "'and that just because I'm four feet tall and my voice hasn't broken yet, "'I'm the best choice to find them a comfy pillow "'or have a long chat about the business they're about to be doing planetside.' What a lot of civilians don't get is that this is the Confederation starship Lakshmi, and when you're on my ship, it's serious business. A cabin boy is part of the crew like anyone else, and I've got real work to do. Ask Captain Watanabe if you think I'm lying. 
Anyway, this Balchescu was a strange sort of fellow, young and old at the same time, if you know what I mean. He had all his hair, and he wasn't too wrinkled, but his face was thin, and the rest of him wasn't much huskier. He couldn't have been much older than my cabin mate, Ping, which would have made him late thirties, maybe forty at the most, but he dressed like an old man, or like someone out of an old movie. You know, those ancient films from Earth where they wear coats with patches on the elbows and loose pants and those things around their necks. Ties, right. That's how he dressed, but no tie, of course. He wasn't crazy. He just thought he was better than everyone else. Wanted you to know that even though he was some kind of language scientist, he was artistic. It wasn't just his clothes. You could also tell by the things he said, the kind of music he listened to. I'd heard it coming out of his cabin a couple of times. Screeches like cats falling in love. Crashes like someone banging on a ukulele with a crescent wrench. Intellectual stuff, in other words. I can't help but noticing that much ado is being made of this particular stomp, Mr. Jat, he said when he stopped me on deck. But I went through four viscer rings on the way out to Brightman Star. Nobody made much of it. Why such a fuss over this one? This, what do they call it? People call Rainwater Hub the waterhole, I told him. You can call it a fuss, but it's dead serious business, Mr. Belchescu. Why don't you call me Stefan, my young friend? That would be easier, and I could call you Roley. I've heard some of the others call you that. I couldn't do it, sir. Regs won't allow it. All right, how about something else, then? You could call me something amusing, like Mr. B. I almost made a horrified face, but Chief Purser always says letting someone know you're upset is just as rude as telling them out loud. If you don't mind, I'll just keep calling you Mr. Balchescu, sir. It's easier for me. All right, then, Mr. Jatt. So why is Rainwater Hub such a serious business? I did my best to explain. To be honest, I don't understand all the politics and history myself. That's not our job. Like we rocket jocks always say, we just fly them. But here's what I know. When Balchescu said he went all the way out to Brightman Star and there was no fuss about wormhole transfers, he was right. But that's because he left from the Libra system, and his whole trip had been through Confederation space. All those viscer rings he went through were C.O. and O., as we say, Confederation owned and operated. But when he hopped on the lack to join us on our run from the Brightman system to Col Hydre, well, that trip requires one jump through non-Confederation space, the one we were about to make. Not only that, but for some reason not even Doc Swainsey can explain so I can understand, the viscer ring here at Rainwater is hinky, or rather the wormhole itself is. Sometimes it takes a little while until the conditions are right, so the ships sort of line up and wait. All kinds of ships. The most you'll ever see in one place. Confederation, ex-Malkin, Blessed Union, ordinary rim traders, terraform scouts out of Covenant, you name it. They call it the waterhole because most of the time everybody just shares. Even enemies. Nobody wants to shut down the hub, but it means you could wind up with an entire fleet stranded on this side of the galaxy. So there's a truce. It's a shaky one sometimes. Captain Watanabe told us once in the early days the Confederation tried to arrest a Covenant jumbo at another hub, Persakis out near Zeta Ophiuchus. The Covenant had been breaking an embargo on the Malkinates. Persakis was shut down for most of a year, and it took twenty more for everyone to recover from that. So now everybody agrees there's no hostilities inside a hub safety zone, like predators and prey sharing a water hole on the savannah. Once you get there, it's sanctuary. It's Casablanca. I mentioned I like old Earth movies, didn't I? 
After I'd explained, Balchescu asked me a bunch more questions about how long we'd have to wait at Rainwater Hub and who else was waiting with us. For a guy who'd traveled to about 15 or 20 different worlds, I have to say he didn't know much about politics or Confederation ships, but I did my best to bring him up to speed. When he ran out of things to ask, he thanked me, patted me on the head, then walked back to the view deck. Yeah, patted me on the head. I guess nobody told him that any member of a Confederation crew can break a man's arm using only one finger and a thumb. He was lucky I had things to do. The weird stuff started happening as we entered the zone. Captain Watanabe and ship's navigator Chin Herrera were on the calm with Rainwater Hub Command when things started to get scratchy. At first they thought it was just magnetar activity, because it's a pretty big one close by. It's one of the things that makes Rainwater kind of unstable. The bridge lost Hub Command, but they managed to latch onto another signal, calm from one of the Rainwater's own lighters, and so they saw the whole thing on visual through a storm of interference. Chin Herrera showed it to me afterward, so I've seen it myself. I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't. First, there was the huge alien ship, although even after several views it takes a while to realize it is a ship, shaped more like a jellyfish or an amoeba, all curves and transparencies, not particularly symmetrical. In another circumstance, you might even call it beautiful, but not when it's appearing out of a wormhole where it's not supposed to be. The viscer ring wasn't supposed to open for another several hours, and it certainly wasn't supposed to open to let something out. Then that thing appeared, the angry thing. It was some kind of volumetric display, but what kind even Doc Swainsey couldn't guess, a three-dimensional projected image. But what it looked like was some kind of furious god, a creature the size of a small planet rippling and burning in the silence of space. It just barely looked like a living creature. It had arms, that's all you could tell for certain, and some kind of glow around the face that might have been eyes. Its voice, or the voice of the alien ship projecting it, thundered into every calm of every ship within half a unit of Rainwater Hub. Nobody could understand it, of course. Not then. It was just a deafening, scraping roar with bits along the edges that barked and twittered. Like a circus dumped into a meat grinder, audience and all, Chen Herrera said. I had to cover my ears when he played it for me. If it had stopped there, it would have been weird and frightening enough. But right after the monstrous thing went quiet, some kind of weapon fired from inside it, from the ship itself cloaked behind the volumetric display. It wasn't a beam so much as a ripple. At the time, you couldn't even see it, but when we played it back, you could see the moment of distortion across the starfield when it passed, and the nearest ship to the Visser Ring, a Malkinate heavy freighter, flew apart. It happened just as fast as that. A flare of white light, and then the freighter was gone, leaving nothing but debris too small to see in the lighter's calm feed. Thirteen hundred men dead. Maybe they were ex-Malkins, and they didn't believe what we believed, but they were still shipmen like us. How did it feel to have their ship, their home, just disappear into fragments around them, to be suddenly thrown into the freezing black empty? A few seconds later, as if to show it wasn't an accident, the god thing roared again and convulsed, and another ship was destroyed, one of Rainwater's lighters. This one must have had some kind of inflammable cargo because it went up like a giant magnesium flare, a ball of white fire burning away until nothing was left but floating embers. 
That was too much, of course. Proof of hostile intent, and a flight of wasps was scrambled from Rainwater Station and sent after the jellyfish ship. Maybe the aliens were surprised by how quickly we fought back, or maybe they were just done with their giant hologram. In either case, it disappeared as the wasp flight swept in. A moment later, the wasps were in range and began to fire on the intruder, but their pulses only sputtered and flashed against the outside skin of the jellyfish ship. A moment later, every one of the wasps abruptly turned into a handful of sparks flung out in all directions like spinning Catherine wheels. An entire flight, gone. After that, everybody fell back, as you can imagine. Ran like hell might be a better way to put it. The Confederation ships met up in orbit around the nearest planet, several units away from rainwater, and the officers began burning up the comm lines, as you can imagine. Nobody'd seen anything like the jellyfish before or recognized whatever it was on that volumetric or how it was done. We accessed some of the hub drones so we could keep a watch on rainwater. The alien ship was still sitting there, although the viscer ring behind it had closed again. There were moments when the angry god display flickered back to life as if it was waking up to have a look around, and other moments when crackling lines of force like blue and orange lightning arced back and forth between the jellyfish and the ring. But none of this told anyone a thing about what was really going on. Our first major clue came when one of the hub's own lighters got close enough to pick up some of the wreckage from the Malkin Jumbo. The ship had not been blown apart in any normal sense, no shear and no heat, or at least no more than would be expected with sudden decompression. The carbon ceramic bones and skin of the ship had just suddenly fallen apart. Deladdest was Doc Swainsey's term. She didn't sound happy when she said it either. It's not a technology I know, she told Captain Watanabe the day after the attacks. It's not a technology I can even envision. The captain looked at her, and they stood there for a moment, face to face, two very serious women, dark, tall, and blonde, Captain W. a bit shorter, and so dark-haired and pale-skinned that she looked like an ink drawing. "'But is it a technology we can beat?' the captain finally asked. I never heard the answer, because they sent me out to get more coffee. About two hours later, while I was bringing more whiskey glasses to the captain's cabin, which meant I assumed that the doctor's answer had been negative, I found Balchescu standing, waiting for the lift to the bridge. "'I think I have it, Mr. Jatt,' he told me as I went by. I was in a hurry. Everyone on the ship was in a hurry, which was strange, considering we obviously weren't going anywhere soon, but something in his voice made me stop.' He sounded exhausted, for one thing, and when I looked at him more closely, I could see he didn't look good, either. He was pale and trembling, like he hadn't had anything but coffee or focus meds for a while. Maybe he was sick. "'Have what, Mr. Balchescu? What are you talking about?' "'The language. The language of the things that attacked us. I think I've cracked it.' Two minutes later, we were standing in front of the captain, Chief Navigator Chin Herrera, Doc Swansea, and an open calm line going out to the other Confederation ships.' I couldn't have done this if it had been pure cryptography, Balchescu explained, standing up after all the introductions had been handled. His hands were still shaking. He spilled a little of his coffee. He obviously needed some food, but I was damned if I was going to leave the room just then. Sorry, we spacemen swear a lot, but I wasn't going to rush out to the galley just when he was about to explain. What I mean to say is, Balchescu went on, if it is anything like the languages we already know, and I think it is, then they haven't given us enough of a sample to do the standard reductions. For one thing, we couldn't know that we were even hearing all of it. 
"'What are you talking about?' asked Chin Herrera. "'Not hurt at all. It nearly blew our comms to bits.' "'We heard the part that was in our audio register, "'and there were other parts above and below human hearing range as well that we recorded, "'but who could say for certain that they weren't parts of the language "'outside the range of our instruments? "'This is a first encounter. Never make assumptions, Chief Navigator.' "'Chin Herrera turned away, hiding a scowl. "'He didn't like our Mr. Belchescu much, it was easy to see. "'The Chief Navigator was a good man, and always nice to me, "'but he could be a bit old-fashioned sometimes.' I actually understood what Balchescu was saying because I've spent my life living with other people's assumptions, too. That's what happens when you're my size. So you're saying the sample wasn't enough to form a basis for translation, Dr. Balchescu? This was Dr. Swainsey. Then why are we here? Because it is language, and I know what they're saying, Balchescu said wearily. By his expression, you'd have thought he was being forced to explain the alphabet to a room full of four-year-olds. You see, we've enlarged the boundaries of human contact space quite a bit in the last couple of hundred years. The hub system has seen to that. Just a few weeks ago, I was out in the Brightman system, doing something that would have been unthinkable only generations ago, xenolinguistic fieldwork with untainted living cultures. He gave Chen Herrera a bit of a sideways look. In other words, speaking alien with aliens. Our linguistic database has also expanded hugely so I figured it was worth a try to see if there were any similarities between what we heard at Rainwater Hub and any of the other cultures we've recorded on the outskirts of contact space. I spent hours and hours going through different samples, comparing points of apparent overlap. And, Dr. Belchescu? That was Captain Watanabe. She wasn't big on being lectured, either. And there are similarities— "'Distant and tenuous, but similarities nevertheless, "'between what we heard yesterday "'and some of the oldest speech systems "'we found out toward the galactic rim. "'I can't say exactly what the relationships are. "'That will take years of study, "'and to be honest, a great deal more information "'about this latest language. "'But there are enough common elements "'that I think I can safely translate what we heard, "'at least roughly.' He looked around expectantly, almost as if he was waiting for polite applause from the captain and the others. He didn't get it. I used what we already know about these particular rim dialects as a ratchet, combined with some guesswork. Get to the point, doctor, the captain said. Tell us what it said. A lot of good men and women are dead already, and the rest of us are stranded, 46 parsecs from the nearest Confederation hub. Sorry, of course. He pointed to the comm screen, and the picture of the monstrous apparition jumped back onto it. I'd seen it before, of course. Everyone had been watching it over and over, trying to understand what had happened, but it still scared the brass marbles off me. It was like something out of an old ghost story, the kind they tell down in the engine bay on a slow shift, with the lights down. The thing was like some wailing spirit, a banshee heralding death, and not just the death of a few, but of the whole human race. How could we beat something like that? As the image billowed and stretched in achingly slow motion like living flame, Balchescu spoke. What it seems to be saying, as far as I can tell, is unfortunately just as bellicose as its actions suggest. It boils down to this. He said it like a man reciting a memorized speech, all emotion squeezed out of his voice. Your death is upon you. Only black ash will show that you ever lived. The outward-reaching murder army, that's the best I can do, that's pretty much what they're saying, will spit upon the stars that give you life, extinguishing them all. 
The cold will suck the life from you. All memory of you will be obliterated. Belchescu shook his head. Not exactly Shakespeare. In fact, a rather crude translation, but it makes the main points. The monstrous shape still rippled slowly on the calm screen, its face glowing like a dying sun. Well, said Captain Watanabe after a long silence, and now that we know what it said, I'm sure we all feel a lot better. Everybody on board the Lakshmi continued to hurry around as the days went past, but with what seemed like an increasing hopelessness. Rainwater was one of the longest and most important holes. Without it, it would take us years, maybe decades, to make our way back. There was no other shortcut from this part of the rim. Under emergency regs, most of the passengers had been put into cryo, except for those like Belchescu, who had a job to do. I didn't have much to keep me occupied, so I spent a lot of time with the people who had time to spend with me. Chin Herrera, the navigator, didn't have much to do either, once he'd plotted the various ways back home that bypassed rainwater. But when he was done, he didn't really want to talk. I'd bring him wine and stay a while, but it wasn't much fun. One evening I got called up to Belchescu's room, an unused officer's cabin he'd been given. To my surprise as I got there, Doc Swainsey was just leaving, dressed in civilian clothes, a dress of all things, and carrying her shoes. She smiled at me as she went past, but it was a sad one, and she didn't really seem to see me. Balchescu was sitting in the main room listening to music, kind of pretty, old-fashioned music for a change, and when he saw my face he smiled a little bit too. We all deal with fear in different ways, he said, as if that explained something. Did you bring my coffee, Mr. Jatt? I put the tray down. There's plenty of coffee in the commons room, I told him. A touch grumpily, I guess. Cups, spoons, you name it. Even stuff that tastes like sugar. It's practically a five-star restaurant down there. I wasn't sure what that meant, but I'd heard it in old movies. He raised an eyebrow. Ah, is it the revolt of the proletariat then, Mr. Jatt? He asked. The Admirable Crichton. If we are all going to die, let it be as equals. I'd seen the Admirable Crichton, as a matter of fact, but I didn't remember anyone using a word like proletariat. Still, I got the gist. Some would say we were already equals, Mr. Belchescu, I said. The Confederation Constitution, for one. I've read it. Have you? He laughed. Touché, my good chat, as it happens. I have. It has its moments, but I think it would make a dull libretto, unlike this. He gestured loosely to the air, and I realized he was drunk, so I started pouring the coffee. We might die as equals, but it probably wouldn't be soon, and in the meantime, I'd be the one who'd have to clean up any messes. I said, unlike this, he told me again, more loudly. The music was getting loud, too. Some men singing in deep voices, all very dramatic. I heard you, I practically shouted back. Here's whitener if you want some, and sweetener. I haven't been able to get this out of my head for days. He waved his hand over the chair arm, and the music got quieter, although I could still hear it. Don Giovanni... That thing, that alien projection we saw, reminds me of the Commentatore's statue, come to drag us all to hell. He laughed and reached clumsily for the coffee. I held the cup until he had a grip on it. I have no idea what you're talking about, Mr. Belchescu, I said. Unless you want something else, I'd better be going. That's what Diana said. Pardon. Dr. Swainsey. Never mind. He laughed again, another in a line of some of the saddest laughs I had ever heard. Don't you know Don Giovanni? 
My God, what do they teach cabin boys these days? How to deal with drunken idiots, mostly, Mr. Balchescu. No, I don't know, Don Giovanni. One of those old mafia films? He shook his head. He seemed to like doing it enough that he kept it up for a bit. No, no. Don Giovanni, the opera, Mozart, about a terrible man who seduces women, preys on them, really. He began to shake his head again and seemed to remember that he'd done that already, and for a good long while, too. At the end, the murdered spirit of one of the women's fathers, the commentatore, comes after him in the form of a terrible statue. In his foolishness and his pride, Don Giovanni invites the ghost to supper. So the statue, the ghost, whatever you want to call it, it comes. It's going to take him to his judgment. Listen. He cocked an ear toward the music. The commentatore statue is saying, Tum investasi a cena, il tuo dover o se. Respondimi, verrei tu a cena meco? That means, you invited me to dinner, now will you come dine with me? In other words, he's going to take him off to hell. And Don Giovanni says, I'm no coward, my heart is steady in my breast. He'd rather go to the devil than show himself afraid. That's panache. Balchescu was lost in it now. His eyes closed as the music swelled and the voices boomed. The ghost takes his hand. Don Giovanni cries out, It's so freezing cold. The ghost tells him it's its last moment on earth. Repent. No, no, ciò non me pento, Don Giovanni tells him. He won't repent. Balchescu sat back in his chair, eyes still closed inside. That is art. That's what art can do. He said it, slurred it a bit, actually, as though it were the end of a beautiful dream. But I could hear the music in the background, and nobody sounded very happy, not even the stony-voiced thing that I guessed was the commentatore statue. Made sense. What did the poor old commentatore have to look forward to after his revenge, anyway? He was already dead. I don't get you, Mr. Belchescu. He frowned. You really should call me doctor, Mr. Jatt. I am a doctor, you know. Art, I said. Art teaches us the things that reality can't. Teaches us to live with the things that seem beyond endurance. Missed chances, failed love affairs, suffering and death. The stuff of actual life. He was lecturing again, and I didn't like it. But what's so good about that, I asked. I don't like your kind of art. That highfalutin stuff that's just like real life. Why can't it be the other way around? Why can't life imitate the stuff I like? Like Casablanca, you know? Some scary bits, some laughs, then the good guys win. A decent ending, you know? Why can't life be like that? I was getting kind of angry. Ah, well, you know what Oscar Wilde once said? God and other artists are always a little obscure. Balchescu looked just as struck by dark thoughts as I was, his thin face sagging into lines of weariness. All of us on the lack were feeling that way, trying to follow our routines in the long shadow of doom, or at least permanent exile. "'You know, I shouldn't even be here,' he said after a while. "'I was going to go back to my home on the Gleasy Ring, but a colleague asked me to come to the opening of an exhibit at the Xenobiology Gardens on Colhydre 7. Just a big party, basically, but he used some of my material from the Xenolinguistic Encyclopedia, and I thought I'd like—' He shook his head, and here I am, never going home now, because I said yes to a goddamn cocktail party. He fell silent again for a long moment. Never mind, Mr. Chat. I've kept you long enough. I'm sure you have more important people to help. As I've told you, I didn't really like Balchescu much, and I usually don't give a crap for other people's self-pity. But I suddenly felt sorry for him. Don't ask me why. He wasn't any worse off than the rest of us. But I did. A little. Mr. Balchescu, how old do you think I am?
The reaction was slowed by alcohol, but when it came he looked mildly startled. How old are you? My dear Jat, how the hell should I know? Ten? Eleven bits more for your age? Has it ever occurred to you to wonder why a Confederation cruiser would have an able-bodied shipman ten or eleven years old? But you're... you're a cabin boy, aren't you? That's the name of my job, yes, but I'm a legit grade CS6 shipman, bucking for grade 7. I'm 43 years old, Mr. Balchescu. I've been shipping out on Confederation ships for 25 years. His eyes went wide. But look at you. You're a kid. I look like a kid, but I'm just about your age, right? Although now you look about 10 years older. You look like crap, in fact. He straightened up a little, which is what I'd intended. What happened to you? Is it some kind of genetic thing? Yeah, but not the way you mean. My parents were Highfielders. They were subscribers to Reverend Highfield's generation ship. You may have heard of that. The Highfielder movement started up about the same time the ex-Malkins were splitting off. My parents' church said that the Confederation system was full of sinners and was doomed to be destroyed by the Lord, so they planned to send their children away to find another home outside the system, somewhere far away across the galaxy, and to make sure we'd be able to survive on a ship as long as possible. They worked with geneticists to retard our aging processes. See... They started this project before we were even born. And that was supposed to give us an advantage for a long-haul trip. Keep us small, easy to feed, revved-up immune systems. So don't worry about me, Mr. Belchescu. I'll hit puberty eventually, but it won't be for another 20 or 30 years. I'm looking forward to sex, though. I hear it's a lot of fun. What happened? Belchescu was listening now, all right. Why didn't you go? Do you remember Cattle's World? For a moment, he couldn't place it, and then he went a little pale. I see that a lot when I tell people. Oh, my God, he said. Those were your parents? My folks and about a thousand other highfielders, and, of course, a few thousand of their children. That's why the Confederation went in, to protect the children. But, as you probably remember, things didn't work out so well with that. I was one of about 800 that was rescued alive. I grew up in an orphanage, but I always wanted to see the big black. I figure it's sort of what I was born for, so here I am. He stared at me. Why are you telling me this? I don't know exactly, Mr. Belchescu. I hate to see people lose track of what's important, I guess, and I hate to see people make assumptions, and I definitely don't like to see people being underestimated. Are you saying I underestimated you? He sat up and wiped his hand across his face. Well, I suppose I did, Mr. Jett, and I apologize for... With respect, Mr. Belchescu, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you underestimating yourself. Instead of sitting around listening to weepy music and feeling sorry for yourself, there must still be useful work you can do. You figured out what those aliens were saying. What else can you figure out about them? When I left with the empty wine glasses, he was drinking his coffee and staring up at the ceiling, as if he was thinking about something real. The music had started again. Don Giovanni and his doomed pursuit of pleasure. Oh, well, better that than the caterwauling modern stuff, I guess. Honest, I've got nothing against art. I hope I've made that clear. I just don't like moping. A waste of everyone's time. Life's a banquet, as good old Rosalind Russell said in one of those ancient films I like. And most poor suckers are starving to death. The thing that finally made it all happen was Doc Swainsey's report. 
I don't know what happened between her and Balchescu, but after the night I saw her, she pretty much disappeared from social life on the ship, spending like 20 hours a day in her lab. I know, because who do you think brought her meals to her, cleared away the old trays and tried to get her to sleep and take a sonic occasionally? Anyway, it happened during one of the meetings where I was off duty, and my roomie, Ping, was serving at the bridge conference table. He gave me the lowdown the next morning. Doc Swainsey was just finishing up her final report. The energies she'd been able to analyze in the destruction of the Malconate ship and the hub lighter were like nothing else she'd seen, she told the captain and the others. The wreckage was like nothing else she'd seen either. The projection mechanism had to be like nothing she'd seen, and she'd been in touch with a xenobiologist on one of the other trapped ships, and he agreed that the projected apparition looked like nothing he'd seen either. If it was an image of a real-life form, it was one we hadn't come into contact with yet. Extragalactic, most likely, was Balchescu's one contribution, Ping said. Nobody argued, but nobody seemed very happy about it either. Then the odd part happened. Doc Swainsey closed with one last point. She said that in analyzing the projection, she discovered a regular pulse of complex sound buried deep in the roaring, blaring audio at a level too low for humans to hear without speeding it up. It didn't sound anything like the speech Balchescu had translated. In fact, she wasn't sure at all that it was speech, although it seemed too regular and orderly to be an accident. She said she didn't know what it signified either. She just thought she should mention it. Ping said she looked exhausted and sad. And just at this point, Balchescu got up and walked out. When Ping told me, I couldn't help wondering what was going on. Was it something to do with that evening the two doctors had spent together, the one I'd walked in on? It had just looked like a less than satisfactory date to me, but maybe my lagging biochemistry had betrayed me. Maybe there had been something more complicated going on. Ping said that Doc Swainsey had looked surprised, too, when Balchescu left so abruptly, surprised and maybe a little hurt, but she didn't make a big deal of it. That upset me. I really liked Doc Swainsey, although the difference in our ranks meant I didn't get to talk to her much. I didn't have much time to think about Stefan Balchescu, though. That morning as I came on duty, right after I talked to Ping, we heard that five Malconate cruisers had attacked the jellyfish ship. The black starfield around Rainwater Hub looked like a landing night celebration back home. Fireworks everywhere, but silent, of course, completely silent. The ex-Malkins were obliterated in a matter of minutes. Things got a little crazy after that. Some of the passengers who were supposed to be in deep sleep staged a sort of mini-mutiny. We didn't do much to them once we put an end to their uprising, just put them back in cryo where they were supposed to be in the first place. One of the passenger cabin CS4s turned out to be the sympathizer who'd let them out, and he wound up in cryo himself, except in the brig. Captain Watanabe knew she had a lot of unhappy, worried shipmen on her hands, but she also wanted to make sure she did the right thing. The problem was, at that moment, nobody believed that anything good could happen from staying near Rainwater Hub. Everybody figured if we were going to take years getting home, we may as well get started. But the captain and some of the other Confederation officers hadn't given up yet, and strangely enough, the one who had convinced them to hang on was Stefan Belchescu. I only found out what was happening when I got called to the bridge one evening almost a week later. It was about day 20 of the crisis. Captain Watanabe was in the conference room with Lieutenant Chin Herrera, Dr. Swainsey, First Lieutenant Davitz, who headed up the ship's marines, and several men and women from engineering whose names I didn't know. They've kind of got their own world down there. I asked the captain what I could bring her. Just sit down, chat, she told me. Shipman Ping's handling your duties. You're here as an observer. 
Observer? I had no idea what she was talking about. Beg your pardon, Captain, but observing what? It was a mark of how sure she was of her command that I could ask my commanding officer a question that easily. A lot of them want you to treat anything they say like it's written on a stone tablet. This, she said, and one of the engineers turned on the comm screens. The first thing I saw was a group of perhaps a half a dozen red circles moving across a starfield, heading toward the immensity of the alien jellyfish ship. It took me a few more seconds until I figured out that the red circles were only on our screen, that they were markers outlining the position of several small confederation ships which would otherwise have been almost too dark to see. The weird thing, though, was that I could see as I focused on their silhouettes when they crossed in front of the alien vessel that they weren't confederation cruisers or jumbos or even attacking ships, but lifeboats the captain said, as if she'd heard my thought, one from each of the Confederation ships. I'm sorry, Captain Watanabe, I'm still not getting any of this. I looked around to see if anyone else was as puzzled as I was, but they were all watching the screens intently. I noticed that Balchescu, who lately had been at all these sort of meetings, was conspicuously absent. Had he given up, or just pissed everyone off so much that they hadn't invited him for this, whatever it was? Bear with us, shipment Jat. "'The captain said, "'You're here by special request, "'but we're in the middle of an actual mission here, "'and we don't have time to—' "'Her attention was distracted by a murmur from the first lieutenant. "'They're not going for it,' he said. "'Maybe they're just not in a hurry,' said Doc Swainsey. "'Their approach is slow. Give it time.' "'Even as she said it, one of the lifeboats suddenly flew apart. "'The others scattered away from their stricken comrade in all directions, "'but slowly, too slowly.' The small ships dodged and dived, but with only a few minutes every one of them had been reduced to shattered flotsam. I blinked hard as my eyes filled with tears. "'There he is,' said Captain Watanabe. "'See, Jat?' When she turned to face me, she saw my face. "'No, look, he got through.' "'He? What are you talking about? They're all dead.' It was all I could do to keep from sobbing out loud at the waist, the murderous stupidity of it all. No, no, Jat, the lifeboats were unmanned, they were cover, that's all. She pointed to the screen again, and what I had taken for another small rounded chunk of debris. See, that's him, he's almost reached them. He doesn't know, Captain, said Chen Herrera suddenly. Balchescu didn't tell him. For Christ's sake, who is this he you keep talking about? Then suddenly it hit me. Wait a minute, Balchescu? Are you telling me that's Balchescu out there? What's he doing? What's going on? I was almost crying again, and if you don't think that's embarrassing for a guy my age, no matter how tall he is, you're a damn idiot. He's in one of our exterior repair pods, said Chen Herrera, pointing to the tiny avocado-shaped object floating across the starfield toward the jellyfish, which loomed above it now like a frozen tidal wave. The engineers modified it. Wait till you see what it can do. "'If the ship lets it get close enough,' said Doc Swainsey. "'I noticed for the first time that her eyes were red, too. "'I still didn't really understand, "'but I sat in silence now with everyone else holding my breath "'as I watched the tiny object float closer to the monstrous ship. "'At last, it touched and stuck. "'Everyone cheered, even me, although I still wasn't quite sure why. "'Slowly, the rounded shape of the repair pod "'flattened against the side of the jellyfish ship "'until it had turned itself into a wide, shallow dome.' like a black blister. "'It's slicing its way through,' said Chin Herrera. "'Monofilament cutter.' "'Put on the helmet feed,' said the captain. "'A moment later, another picture jumped onto the screen, "'a close-up view of something falling away. "'A section of the alien ship's skin had been cut away, "'now falling into the ship, I realized. "'The hole it left pulsed with bluish light. "'How's the pod holding up?' 
the captain called to the engineers. The blister beams have gone rigid. No loss of pressure. We're solid, ma'am. A moment later, we could see feet in an excursion suit fill the screen as Balchescu looked down while he stepped through the hole cut in the alien hull. It seemed crazy. The aliens must know he was there. How many seconds could he have until they were on him? And what the hell was he supposed to do in that little time? Plant a bomb? Why would they send Balchescu to do that instead of one of the Marines? But all I asked was, why isn't he talking to us? Radio silence, Chen Herrera whispered, to make sure we give him as long as possible before he's detected. He likes it better that way anyway, said Doc Swainsey. As Balchescu moved inside, it was as though he had been swallowed into some giant living thing. The blue-lit corridor was mostly smooth except for low bumps and strange formations, and as shiny wet as internal organs, I half expected him to be swept up like a corpuscle in a bloodstream, but instead he turned into the main passage, which seemed to be about a half a hundred feet tall and nearly that wide, and began to move down it. He was walking, I realized, which meant the ship had to have some kind of artificial gravity. What's he looking for? I whispered, but nobody answered me. Suddenly a trio of inhuman shapes emerged from a side corridor into the main passageway. I heard several of the observers swear bitterly. I must confess Captain Watanabe was one of them, as the horrors turned toward Balchescu. I couldn't make a sound. I was so frightened. They were at least twice human height, rippling like ash in a fire, but undeniably real, even seen only on calm screen. Whatever complicated arrangement was at the bottom of their bodies didn't touch the floor, but they did not give the impression of being light or airy or ghostly, and their faces, if those were their faces, well, I'll just say I think I know now what was under the commentatore's mask. Balchescu stopped and stood, waiting for them. We could tell he'd stopped because the walls around him stopped moving. I guess he thought there was no point in running away, although if it had been me, I sure as hell would have given it a try. The entire bridge was silent. You know that expression about hearing a pin drop? If someone had dropped one just then, we all would have jumped right out of our skins. The terrible things approached Balchescu until they were right in front of him, and then they glided right past him. What the hell? I said, louder than I meant to, but nobody seemed to care. Uh, they were too busy cheering. For a second, I thought they'd lost their minds. Has he got some kind of cloaking device, I asked. Balchescu had turned around for some reason and was following the floating aliens. To my horror, he actually hurried after them until he caught them, then reached out and shoved the nearest one in the back. The creature stumbled slightly, or at least bobbed off balance, but then righted itself and went on as if it hadn't noticed anything unusual. Neither of them even looked back. I felt like crying again, even as everyone else was celebrating. I just didn't get it. I almost thought I'd lost my mind. I hope you all saw that, Balchescu said. I realized it was the first time I'd heard his voice in days. Who would have guessed I'd be hearing it over a comm link from the alien ship? I humbly submit that I have won the argument. You sure did, you arrogant son of a bitch, shouted Chen Herrera, but I think the comm link was only working one way. What happened? I asked Doc Swainsey. She seemed more restrained than the others, as if she didn't quite believe this was the victory everyone else seemed to think it was. They're not real, she said. He was right, Rahul. The doctor is the only person who calls me by my true name. Not real, but they blew up our ships, and just now he pushed one of them. Oh, they're real enough, they have weight and mass, but they're constructs. They're not real people any more than child's toy soldiers are real. She frowned. 
She looked very tired, like it was taking all her energy just to keep talking to me. No, that's a bad analogy. They're not that kind of toys. They're puppets. This was all a show. A show? They killed people, hundreds of shipmen. What kind of show is that? But before she could answer me, I heard Balchescu's voice and turned back. This looks like it, don't you think? He asked, as if having a conversation with an old friend. Time to make a little trouble for the local repertory company, I think. George Sanders, maybe even Cary Grant. I have to admit, the superior bastard did have style. He seemed to be standing in a large chamber, one that was even more intestinal than the passageway, if such a thing was possible. At the center of it floated a huge, shifting transparency, a moving gob of glass-clear gelatin as big as a jumbo jet. Balchescu walked toward it, then stopped and held up his calm wand, thumbed it. A deep rasp of sound echoed through the room, and the jelly rippled. Then a vast pseudopod abruptly reached out toward Balchescu and engulfed him. I must have cried out, because Chin Herrera turned to me and said, "'Nah, don't worry, he was right again, damn him. Look, it understood.' The pseudopod was lifting him as gently as a mother with her child. Balchescu's point of view rose up, 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 until he was at the top of the gently swirling jelly, up at the roof of the intestinal, cathedral-sized room. He stepped onto a platform that emerged from the bumps and whirls of the wall, then held up his calm wand again. A single sound, loud and rough as a tree pulling up its roots as it fell. Then Balchescu and the rest of us waited. Nothing happened. Maybe I'm being too polite, he said. Balchescu still sounded like he was on a day hike in the hills. Even I had to admire him, me, who'd seen him drunk and feeling sorry for himself. I can't tell you how annoying that was. He lifted the calm wand and thumbed it again, and another wash of sound rolled out, this one harsher and more abrupt. We waited. The jelly thing abruptly shrank away beneath him like water down a drain. Then the lights faded all through the vast room. Everything was black. A moment later, Balchescu's helmet light flipped on, but the view now was almost all shadows, the chamber's far walls a distant, ghostly backdrop. "'Mission accomplished, Captain Watanabe,' he said. "'It's turned off.' The bridge erupted in cheers, some of them almost hysterical. "'I still didn't really understand what I'd just seen or why I was even there, but when Ping appeared a few moments later with something that looked as near as damn it to champagne, I took a glass. God knows everyone else was having some, even the captain.' I was taking my second sip when I noticed someone standing over me. "'I've got something for you, Rahul,' said Doc Swainsey. She showed me her ring with its glowing spot. I let her touch mine so the data could transfer. He asked me to make sure you got it. "'He?' I asked. But I knew who she meant. It was just something to say as I watched her walk away and out of the conference room. She was the only one besides me who didn't seem happy, and I wasn't sure I understood my own reactions.' I stayed on the bridge a little while, but I wanted to see what he'd left for me. Anyway, I never liked champagne much, any alcohol, in fact. Too many people over the years have thought it was funny to try to get the little guy drunk, and I used to be stubborn and stupid enough to try to prove them wrong. Hello, Mr. Jatt. I'm sorry I didn't get to say goodbye properly, but the last few days have been a bit of a whirlwind, and getting ready for this thing we're trying. But I did want to say goodbye. I'm glad I got a chance to know you, even a little bit. I intend no joke, by the way. Balchescu was wearing an exosuit. The message looked like it had been recorded just before he left, which explained why he was talking like he wasn't coming back. But I owed you of all people an explanation, because you were the one that gave me the idea. I guess you must know by now whether I was right or not. 
Like you ever really doubted it, you arrogant S.O.B., I thought. But then I wondered, hang on, if he was so sure of himself, why did he leave me this message? I should have suspected something right away, or at least as soon as I translated the message, he went on. The Balchescu of half a day ago was putting on his exosuit gloves. I mean, really, the outward-reaching murder army will spit upon the stars that give you life. Only black ash will show that you ever lived. A bit over the top, isn't it? But I didn't see it. I took it at face value. Then you asked what else I could figure out about the aliens. I began to wonder. As you said, we knew what they'd said, but not why. Were they just roving the universe like Mongol horsemen, conquering and slaughtering? But why? What was the plan? Why leave a ship with immensely superior firepower to defend a viscer ring when they could have wiped out every ship in the vicinity in minutes? But it was the way they talked that really puzzled me. Bloody melodrama, that's what it was. It was like something out of one of those ancient movies you told me you liked so much. Those aren't the kind of movies I like, I told the recording. Not that John Wayne crap. Well, Except for stagecoach and maybe the quiet man. I like characters. But I couldn't figure out what was making me itch. Then Diane, Dr. Swainsey, came in with her wide-spectrum audio analysis of the sounds that we hadn't noticed at first, the ones that were largely out of our hearing range. Think about it. Behind those overly dramatic words, they were pumping out a huge range of sounds, higher, lower, faster, slower, not exactly synchronized to the words, but emphasizing them, heightening the effect. What does that sound like? It hit me like a blow. A soundtrack, I whispered, like a movie. Right, the recording said, a score, as in an opera, as in Don Giovanni. The recorded Balchescu had closed all his seals and sat calmly as if we were in the same room at the same time, having an ordinary conversation. So I kept thinking, Mr. Jad, why would someone go to such lengths, write an entire space opera, so to speak, just to kill innocent people? I couldn't wrap my head around it, but then I started thinking that maybe they didn't know they were killing anyone. But how could that be? He smiled that infuriating smile of his... "'Because maybe they didn't think there was anyone left to kill. "'Remember, this thing came to us through the rainwater hub, "'the most compromised wormhole in known space. "'Who's to say they even came from our galaxy? "'Remember, I only found traces of their languages "'in some of the very oldest civilizations we know "'out near the galactic rim. "'Maybe the originals that spoke those languages are long gone, "'at least in physical form.' I had no idea what he was talking about, and I was about to run the recording back when he picked his helmet up off the clean pad where it had been sitting. The mirrored visor made a brief infinity loop with the recording wall screen. A million helmets strobed. Look, if you saw this by yourself up close, you would assume someone was in it, right? He slid the visor up to show the empty interior. My guess is these people let's call them the company, like an opera company, have left their physical forms behind long ago. They might even be dead and gone, but that's another libretto. Again, that irritating grin. But what they haven't done is given up art. Just as our operas often imitate the past in which they were written, the company's art mimics the time when they had bodies, entire constructs that perform acts of aggression and destruction and who knows what else, programmed, operating in empty space at the edge of a distant galaxy for the nostalgic pleasure of bodiless alien intelligences. Of course they would violently destroy what they came into contact with because they're pretending to be the kind of ancient savages that would do that. But that's why I'm guessing that the company are no longer wearing bodies. 
They assumed that anything they came in contact with would be more of their own lifeless constructs, part of this art form of theirs that we can't hope to understand. Yet. So that's my idea. In an hour or so we'll find out if it's true. I've convinced the captain it's worth a try, and she's brought in the other Confederation ships, so at the very least I will be the center of a fairly expensive little drama of my own. Balchescu stood then, his helmet under his arm, as though he was some kind of antique cavalier. Sorry I couldn't explain this to you in person, but as I said, it's been a busy last forty-eight hours or so, putting together my hypothesis and then getting ready to test it. He turned toward the door. But I did want to thank you, Mr. Jatt. He opened my eyes in a couple of ways, and that doesn't happen very often. I'll bet it doesn't, I thought. But suddenly I wish I'd told him my first name. At now, one of two things are going to happen, the recorded Balchescu said. Either I'm wrong, somehow, about the purpose of that ship, or about how realistic and thorough its defenses are, in which case, by the time you see this, I'll have been de as Diane puts it, or I'll be right, and I'll be able to use the little bit of company language I've put together, along with some useful algorithms from Doc Swainsey, to override the programming and cancel the show, as it were. He moved to the door of his cabin so that he stood just at the edge of the recorded picture. And if I succeed with that... "'Then I'm going to start looking for some kind of emergency return pod. "'You see, the Confederation are welcome to the ship itself. "'I don't give a damn about how it works or how far it came to get here "'or anything of the things that they want to know. "'I just want to go where the show is happening, "'where the opera or religious passion play or children's game "'or whatever this thing represents is really going on. "'I'm hoping that the company has some kind of recoverable module, "'like a ship's blank box, "'and that it will return to their space.' "'wherever it might be. "'I intend to be on it. "'How could I miss that chance? "'A whole new culture, language, "'and even more importantly, a whole new art form. Nine muses aren't going to be enough anymore, Mr. Jatt. "'So that's why this recording, my friend. "'Either way, I wanted to say thank you. "'And goodbye.' "'And with that, the recorded Belchescu held out his calm wand, "'and the recording went black.' Maybe he hadn't guessed how soon I'd watch the recording. Maybe he was still on the alien ship. I calmed the captain's cabin, but she was on the observation deck with everyone else, celebrating. I rushed up, but before I could say a thing to Captain Watanabe or any of the other officers, I spotted Dr. Swainsey leaning against the biggest view portal, looking out at the jellyfish ship, so strange, so large, so distant. Doc, Doc, I called as I ran up. I know, Rahul, she said without turning. Look, there it goes. She pointed. I thought I could see a dim streak of light moving away from the alien ship, but not toward the viscer ring, I was surprised to see. God only knows what kind of path those things travel, she said. Well, Stefan will find out soon enough. You knew what he was going to do. Of course. I helped him. She looked at me. Oh, Rahul, what else was I going to do? Beg him to stay? We had maybe the beginning of something. How could that compete against a big idea, especially for a man who lived for big ideas? No, I couldn't have asked him, and he couldn't have agreed. We both would have hated ourselves. You'll understand some day. I understand now, I wanted to say. But everyone needs to tell their own story their own way. You don't have to be six feet tall to know that. It was just... I shook my head... At first I didn't like him, but then I kind of thought he and I might be... We might be... It might have been the beginning of a beautiful friendship, she asked. Something in my expression must have amused her because she laughed. 
You don't think you're the only one who watches old pictures, do you? I guess not, I frowned. I think Belchescu's crazy anyway. We've already got music and art and Fred Astaire and Catherine Hepburn and Howard Hawks. Do we need a tenth muse? I need a drink, she said. And then maybe I'll feel a little bit less like Ingrid Bergman. We walked across the observation deck, threading our way through the happy crew members, many of whom were already well into the champagne. She still looked sad, so I reached up and took Doc Swainsey's hand, Diana's hand. Lose a friend, make a friend. Sometimes life does imitate art, I guess. Well, I told her, my best Bogart, whatever else happens, we'll always have rainwater hub. So I have the narrator of that fine story, Nathan Lowell, on the line. Nathan, are you there, Squire? I'm here. I'm here. Hello, hello. Hello, Nathan. Thank you so much for coming on board. My pleasure. Now, tell us, Nathan, where, how, how do you tackle, how do you kind of first tackle, you know, I sent you a story, and, you know, obviously you kind of read through. Where do you go as a narrator from that point? Um, I usually read through the story once just to get a feel for what it's what it's like and and to kind of get an idea for what sort of approach to take to it. Uh, with the with the uh, this story, um, it was a little bit it was a little bit off because the 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 voice the narration voice on it is uh, is supposed to be younger. And I really couldn't do younger with my voice and have it actually work, so I just ran with it. But the, the certain, there's a certain level of snarkiness to it that, that I think came across fairly well. Well, you know, like you say, it was a, a younger character, always, you know, so we're kind of led to believe. But it's still, you know, I'm not, I don't want to pry into your age, Squire, but it still came over as, you know, this kind of, you know, you've got that kind of gift of putting the, the, the listener in this feel, you know, or in this kind of story, that it is, a, you know, you are listening to a, a younger narrator. And it's just, that's the, you know, I've never been able to, I wouldn't even dare go near a narration. Do you know, it's, it's that little gift that you bring, which I think is fascinating. Thanks, thanks. It's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's great fun to do. When it works, it's great fun to do. When it doesn't work, it's it's less fun, shall we say. <laughs> I was going to say, is there sometimes when you, when you do come against a narration and you just think, ah, can I get this thing for uh, losing the money? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very so – once in a very great while, I get one that's that's awkward. But the, there's a, a – like writing, narration pays off with persistence. You keep going and keep going and keep going. I did a, I did a, a book for one of my fellow authors um, – and I think I did the first episode, which was – and we're not talking a trivial episode. It was an hour long. Uh, I think I did the first episode 14 times, 15 times before I got it the way I wanted it. <laughs> Honestly, I could not. I would be so frustrated with, with myself. Do you know what I mean? Just Now, not only do you – I found out do you do like fantastic narrations. You're also going down that rocky road there of being a writer as well and narrating your own work. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. How, how bloody clever are you? So tell us about that side of your life, Nathan. Well, I started in 2007 um, writing science fiction space opera. I started uh, created the golden age of the solar clipper with the idea that I got tired of reading um, science fiction where you had to save the universe every 15 pages and something had to blow up every 10. Uh, so I I came up with this notion that 
what if we expanded into the stars with an airline rather than an air force? What if we sent out freighters rather than frigates? What, what would that do? How would that change our view of the universe? What would that change for the story? And I was also fascinated by the idea of the old, the old Star Trek red-shirted crewman you know, what did he do before he got tapped for the away team and sent down and killed? Did he have a story? Was there something that he was doing? So I I sat down to try to write these stories about what happened to the red-shirted crewman and came up with um, <laughs> what's turned into a franchise in its own right. Um, I've just finished the sixth novel in the Share um, series, the Trader's Tales of the Golden Age. Um, I've got... Another series that spun off from that, The Shaman's Tales. Um, so there's a, a book there. And last year in November, the, uh, my, some of my friends challenged me to write a fantasy book. So I wrote a fantasy book last November during NaNoWriMo as well. So in the last, um, let's see, in January it will be four years. In that amount of time, I've written eight novels. <laughs> Um, I've narrated seven of them. The eighth one, owner share, is pending at the moment because I also, in January of 2007, uh, signed a book deal. So the books are now coming out in print formats in both paper and ebooks. And uh, the second book is due out any day now. I, I've been kind of caught up behind the editing process to get it ready for print, and so that's. That's taken up a certain amount of time. So how did how did the first these first books get out? How did you get them out to people? Patiobooks.com. Right. Um, I went. I, I, you know, back in the end of two thousand six, podcasting was. You know, there were there were a couple hundred podcasters, and there were a couple of million. Uh, iPods that were all hungry for content, so I thought, well, this could be fun. You know, I could I could write my stories and and see if I have an audience and see if I can read them. and And my first challenge was to see if I could actually finish a novel length work. And uh, it took me about ten days to write the first draft, and I proved that I could. Um, and the next challenge was finding a place to record it. You you want you of all people, understand the, the difficulty in finding quiet places to record. Um, and so I recorded the first novel uh, in the front seat of my car uh, using a cheap $20 headset and an MP3 player and put it on patio books in an episodic format so that it was a podcast in, I think, 16 episodes. It, they went up relatively quickly. Uh, and by February, see, I started writing on January 12th in 2007, and I think the first episodes dropped by February 17th. Um, and it was done, I think, in mid-April. Uh, no, it was done in uh, the beginning of May. And so I went right ahead and started the next book. That was quarter share, and then I went to half share, and then full share, and got those three books done by... I think September of 2007. I'd have to look at the dates to be sure. But And then I wrote uh, another one for NaNoWriMo. I wrote um, The uh, South Coast, The Shaman's Tales, and NaNoWriMo, and got that out and, and podcast for Christmas in time for my listeners. Uh, at that point, I had, I think, 300 subscribers. Uh, so, you know, they got, a, they got a little Christmas present of, of an extra book that year. 
This is amazing, honestly, Nathan. You'll have to send us all links to like books that are coming out now in the kind of print format, and you know, links for anything if there's still is Podio Books. Podio is that how you pronounce? It? Is that still yeah. going? Is it? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. There's uh, over 400 titles there now. Uh, quarter share was the, was number 98. Um, owner share is going to be like number 450 or maybe 460. I don't know how many are going to come out between now and the time I get it produced. Um, but yeah, patiobooks.com is uh, where you can always find me. All of the books that are, that are out in audio are available as free downloads on iTunes. Just put Nathan Lowell in the iTunes Music Store and I'll come up. Um, and my website, of course, is solarclipper.com. And we've got some, you know, we've got another story by you coming next month as well. And, and by God, I'll send you some more if that's all right. That's all right. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just looking at the audio track now for the story for for next month, and that's uh, that's a this is a that's a fun one. I'm I've, I'm a, I enjoyed reading that one a great deal as well. Yes, and I've actually that'll be is, that's the Alan Steele one, and I'm yes, just, it's actually funny. I'm just about within the next well next next couple of hours, I'm going to do an interview with Alan Steele for that show, and today I've just getting the artwork for it as well. So I'll just well. When we go offline talking here, I'll send you the artwork just so you can have a look at that, the cover for that story as well. Uh, uh, it's awesome. It's awesome. I've, I discovered Alan Steele last year with the Coyote series, and it's just been great yes, stuff. I, I was like, you know, I kind of got myself swamped with all, you know, Alan Steele stuff and just gobbled, gobbled a whole lot of his work up in about, I don't know how many days, but just listened, constantly listened, and it was excellent. But Nate, honestly, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for, you know, sharing your talents with Starship Sofa. It's my pleasure, Tony. It's um, congratulations for winning the Hugo Award. Oh, and thank you very much, sir. And uh, I'm looking forward to many more hours of my own enjoyment of Starship Sofa. Listen, Nate, you take good care. Thank you. Thank you. There you go. Nathan, thank you so much. Lovely little interview there. And Tad Williams. Copyright, don't forget, is Tad Williams. Don't just go out there messing around. Or you'll have his actually you'll have his wife Deborah to answer to. She sorts it all out. There you go. Thank you so much, you two. There'll be a link to Tad's new book, Shadow Heart. I will put a link on the front of the website. Please just do pop over and take a look. So we're now a little promo by the Balticon podcast. Did you come to Earth for the music and stay for the science fiction? Join a guided tour of the minds that make science fiction great. Get on our cosmic double-decker tour bus at www.balticonpodcast.org and see all the sites. Coming up on our right, time-shifted for your viewing pleasure, are fascinating interviews with writers, fans, and scientists. Streaming in on our left are author readings, con-going tips, and essays. And at the end of the tour, there's always more of that great music that brought you here in the first place. So climb aboard, strap in, and hold on to your petty pallops. It's the Balticon Podcast Tour to the ends of space and time. There you go. Again, a bling on to the Bollycon podcast. Thank you so much. There she goes. That's it. Another show in the bag. Do let me know how you felt about the show. Honestly, send us an email, send us any correspondence, anything like that. Like I mentioned last week, I'm on, I'm on the hunt for some new ideas to take the show 
bigger and better. I've had, honestly, thank you so much for the people that's wrote in and, you know, mentioned little ideas and that. I'm taking some of them on board. Some great ideas there. Please, more. Uh, yes, yes, more. Until next week, I would just like to say good day from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.